Welcome, everyone, to episode 30 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and with me today, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, we're a few weeks into January now. We're a little bit more settled into 2019, you could say. And how is it treating you so far? Uh, it's treating me all right. You know, I, I had to go back to school to this this week, which is, uh, you know, not ideal, but, you know, all good things must come to an end, uh, you know, in terms of my uh, Christmas break and, and holiday break. And I'm excited, you know, to be back to see all of my friends and, and everything, even if the actual school part of it, of course, isn't as appealing. Uh, but yeah, you know, I'm, I got a few uh, exciting things coming up, going to Baltimore next weekend for uh, with my mock trial teams. Um, and we're, you know, we're getting into the the business half of the season where we're uh, trying to make it to Super Regionals for the first time in seven years. So, yeah, hopefully we can get there. And uh, it, it's been a good start to, to the year. You know, the Tennessee is going to be number one probably uh, when the rankings come out. So I, I guess I can't complain now, but uh, I'm sure they'll let me down eventually. <laughs> How are you feeling about your chances for the mock trial team? Pretty good right now. You know, as much as we've lost, we've lost a lot of people um, for both legitimate and non-legitimate reasons. But I think that we have uh, who we have there um, is more than enough to uh, to accomplish what we want to accomplish. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, people people have been talking. That's all I'm going to say on the on the Facebook page of like mock trial confessions or something. Someone referred to us yesterday as a a powerful new dark horse. So we're we're attracting the right attention, I think, which which is good. That's what that's what you want to be doing. So hopefully we can, you know. Uh, come through on those expectations that people now have for us. All right. Well, I'm gonna gonna look forward to updates from you as as the season continues. Oh, yeah. And, you know, however long it lasts. Hopefully, it'll be mostly positive. Obviously, expectations are, are tempered. I'm sure you have. You just mentioned that you hadn't been to Super Regionals in seven years, so it's it's not like you're planning on winning a national championship this year. Of course mm-hmm. not. And uh, yeah, that our goal is to make it to Super Regionals. If we go further than that, then that's great. But uh, you know. Baby steps. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So a little bit later on the podcast today, we're going to be reviewing Barry Jenkins' follow-up to 2016's Moonlight, and that, of course, is If Bill Street Could Talk. But first, we're going to be dissecting our first official 2019 movie, Scott, and that is the culmination of M. Night Shyamalan's East Rail 177 trilogy, and that movie is Glass. Set only three weeks after the events of 2016's Split, Glass sees James McAvoy reprise his role as Kevin Wendell Crumb slash The Horde and pick up right where he left off, kidnapping a group of impure late teen women to be sacrificed to the human-animal persona known simply as The Beast. Before The Beast can arrive, however, Bruce Willis's superhuman David Dunn, returning from 2000's Unbreakable, is able to find The Horde's hideout, rescue the girls, and square off against The Beast. Before the showdown can be concluded, however, Dr. Ellie Staple, played by Sarah Paulson, and a retinue of SWAT team members are able to subdue the two and take them to a psychiatric hospital, where Samuel L. Jackson's mass-murdering Elijah Price, also known as Mr. Glass, is already housed. 
The remainder of the movie follows Dr. Staple attempting to treat the trio of men for what she describes as a very specific kind of delusion of grandeur. Scott, in classic Shyamalan fashion, this movie has its fair share of twists and turns, but did you think this movie was able to hold them all together or had it shattered like glass by the time the credits rolled? <laughs> nice. Uh, so here's the thing. like M. Night Shyamalan has had such an interesting career, right? When he broke through in the late 90s with The Sixth Sense, he was the it filmmaker. He was the you know guy that everyone wanted to get because he was doing original films uh, that were also appealing to a mass audience. And he followed up The Sixth Sense with Unbreakable, which at the time wasn't as well received as perhaps time has uh, been kind to it. Um, a lot of people didn't like the twist that came at the end of Unbreakable. Personally, I love Unbreakable. I think it's my favorite one of his movies, and, and I appreciate the twist, uh, even if, like you, I think it ends a bit abruptly. And then, of course, Signs is, was another really well-received movie that you know re- really sort of only helped his stock rise at the time. And then we got into sort of what was uh, his phase where he he became almost a laughing stock. Um, the you know the worst of which was movies like After Earth and The Last Airbender, um, which were just you know razzy candidates at best. And but now, you know, I think most people would say he's had a bit of a comeback. I think what we've seen with the last couple of movies, with The Visit and then with Split, are solid, good, but not great movies that, uh, you know, show him getting back to what, uh, you know, made him famous, what what he made his name off of, but perhaps, you know, still don't show him at the height of his powers. And I think that Glass probably falls right in line with those two movies. Um, and in doing that, it's it's a solid, you know, I would say it's a good movie, but I would not say it comes close to being a great movie. And I think that you know, this is the case with so many Shyamalan movies, it feels like the movie kind of lives or dies by the twist. Or I, I guess in this case, I should say twists, because there are really sort of three twists, which we'll probably get into in a little bit, that come in the last 20, 30 minutes of this movie. And they, for me, they bordered, you know, they range from impossible, implausible to just unnecessary. And it's a shame because I think there is a lot to like about the movie. And I think that Shyamalan fans, fans of this trilogy, of whom I'm certainly one, are going to find a lot to like. I, you know, I, I tweeted out earlier after I saw it that I thought this was going to be one of those movies that it has about a 30-something on Rotten Tomatoes, but that it has like an 80-something fan score, just because I think it's going to appeal to its target audience. But maybe beyond that, uh, it might not. But yeah, I guess to summarize my thoughts... You know, I really like the first hour and 40, hour and 45 minutes of the movie. I think it raised, it raises a lot of the, the uh, thought-provoking questions that Unbreakable raised. I mean, that was one of the best things about Unbreakable for me is that is, you know, the way it, it asked provocative questions um, about, you know, superhero and comic book culture. And this is, this is certainly more of a direct sequel to Unbreakable than it is uh, a direct sequel to Split uh, in terms of, you know, the plot. And, and so I liked a lot of the stuff in the hospital with uh, Sarah Paulson's character, you know, questioning these three men. We see Samuel L. Jackson come back. I think that the three actors give powerful performances in, in, this, in these early moments. Uh, and I was really, you know, rooting for the movie to succeed because I do like the trilogy. But I think... While I still think the movie is worth seeing, I think I, I 
the the trilogy deserved a better ending. Um, and it's a shame that uh, a lot of what came before, you know, the this the ending of this movie feels a tad negated by the the twist that the Shyamalan throws in there at the end. Although although I will say, and we'll get to it, but I did like the final scene of the movie. I think it ended the trilogy on a decent note, if perhaps not fully satisfying because of what came before it. So I guess kind of a mixed bag, but overall better than I expected and worth seeing, especially for fans of the trilogy. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair assessment of the movie. It's one of those things where if you put all these movies, these three movies back to back to back, I think that what you'd probably say is that, I mean, we'll just call it six hours, even though it's probably a little bit more than that. There's probably like five hours of really good movie there, right? Across the three movies. And then, you know, there, the, there's like the last half hour of this film. And, you know, I think there's a few moments in, in Un- Unbreakable and a few moments in Split that are probably like, okay, this is a little bit filler. But the point is, is like, it's one of those things where I feel like I should, I should feel better about all of these things, right? Like, uh, you, you know, I, we were talking before earlier this week about how I thought that Unbreakable, it's like, it's a really good movie. And then it just ends. It ends in a really weird note. It leaves me just be like, I don't feel like the movie should be ending right now. And Split is also surprised. I mean, we didn't really talk about Split before, but I found Split to be really a really good movie. And I didn't know whether I loved or hated it. It's one of those, it was a, it's a weird movie like that where I'm like, I don't know if I should like this, but you know, something about it, it I know is really good. And I like James McAvoy, even though maybe I don't like it. It's, it's really weird in that way. Right. And then yeah. Glass is this weird amalgamation of both of those movies. And the first 90 minutes of this movie is something that had had me pretty captivated by what I was watching. You know, even from, you know, the second it begins, it, you know, it felt very samey to split because the opening scene is literally just an immediate pickup of where the previous movie had left off because it's them in the house. It's them in a warehouse with he's, you know, the horde has four women there four cheerleaders. And it feels like a reprisal of that, but it quickly takes a new, a new turn when you get to the psychiatric hospital and you have these characters interacting with each other, Bruce, probably one of Bruce Willis's better performances in, in recent years, I'd say. And I think that's yeah. because I mean, this is probably one of his best characters, not his most memorable character, definitely, but one of his best characters, I think. And, and, and the way it's kind of, it feels like it's better written for him than, you know, a lot of recent movies that he started have been, even though, you know, maybe, maybe I just have a different opinion of Bruce Willis than other people do, but I really like this character personally. And then to your point, and you know, kind of to what I was alluding to in my setup for this, is that I, I really just felt that this movie out Shyamalan itself at the end. Yeah. And the twist after twist after twist, and you know, it just was like the entire time I was just like, this is so absurd. Like maybe one of like one of these things can happen, I can still be happy about it. But like all of these things happening just don't work for me. And it's a shame because I thought that they I wasn't quite sure how the movie was going to balance having all three of these personalities in, you know, on screen for most of the movie. And, you know, ultimately it's, I think it's ironic that glass is the name of this movie. Cause I think that he's probably the, I don't know, the least center stage. I mean, it's, it's the nature of his role of, of course, cause he's kind of the mastermind. I mean, literally he calls himself the mastermind of the movie. I think, uh, you know, he's the mastermind behind everything, pulling, pulling the strings Etc. And what you see on the screen is, of course, James McAvoy and Bruce Willis duking it out on several occasions, which I thought were incredibly 
entertaining scenes. I don't always love the way that Shyamalan was shooting the, the fight scenes that Bruce Willis was in. It's very claustrophobic is not quite the right word, but it, it's very like first person-y kind of. It's like right up in Bruce Willis's face. And I feel like there's several shots where you have the beast on the back of, of David Dunn and it's just the same camera shot over and over again. And I get why he's doing it that way because it's not like they're not I mean, at the end of the day, they're not as superhero as we expect these days. And so, you know, the frenetic fighting is, is not exactly what you're getting on screen. And so it, it benefits to have this sort of intimate sort of camera shot of the fight when people aren't moving like 90 miles per hour or whatever. That being said, I guess to kind of jumble my thoughts together here, I think that the narrative is pretty good for about half to maybe two thirds of this movie. I think that the characters are the probably the best part of the movie, in my opinion. And then, you know, the, the acting is solid from, from all three. Unfortunately, I think in terms of narrative wise, the ending sort of unravels itself and, and, and makes you feel like, oh, I don't know. Because I think this movie did such a good job during, you know, the heart of it, where you have Sarah Paulson's Dr. Staple character trying, essentially just trying to convince these men that they're not superheroes. And, you know, I, I was pretty skeptical, eyebrows raised when she started it. By, you know, but by two thirds into the movie, I'm like, it is interesting. Like, if, that, if all this, what she's saying is true, like, it does make you question how super these individuals are. But, you know, as, as is to be expected by the time the movie is over, you know, you, you know, you feel differently. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with what you're saying. And I think that this is, you know, the main reason why I think fans of the trilogy and fans of Shyamalan are going to enjoy this movie the most because, you know, the, the, really the selling point going into this movie is seeing these three characters on screen together, right? Obviously they don't interact in any of the other movies. No one even knew that they were part of the same universe until Split came out and had that surprise ending. And those scenes with the three characters together really deliver. You know, I think for the most part, you know, they're pretty successful seeing these three very different personalities interacting with each other. And it really works, you know, if you think about this as a superhero movie, which I think Shyamalan does want us to think about that, you know, you really have all sides of the spectrum represented. You have the superhero, which is Bruce Willis's David Dunn. You have the supervillain, which is Elijah Glass. And you have the sort of anti-hero for lack of a better comparison, Deadpool-like figure of uh, Kevin Wendell Crumb, who has something, you know, he has a good person within him. Even, you know, some of his personalities are even, you know, are, are good people, but he also has another side to him, you know, this beastly side uh, that can help but but make its way out sometimes. So I think, you know, it, it it's really interesting in that way that we have all sides represented. And I think, you know, that the fireworks that happen when you get those characters together are really are the highlight of this movie. Agreed. So probably just worth now jumping into a little bit into a little bit more detail around some of these things. And and first, why don't we just go ahead and start with those characters? You know, I already mentioned that I think the characters and the acting is probably the best part of this movie, at least from at least from start to finish. And so I kind of bucketed the the, the acting into two categories. One like the the leading men, which is kind of obvious here, <clears throat> uh, Jackson, Willis, and McAvoy, and then the supporting women. Uh, with Sarah Paulson. And then also we haven't talked about her yet, but Anya Taylor-Joy does reply or sorry, reprise her role um, in this movie from her from Split. But why don't we start with the leading men, Uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Bruce Willis, James McAvoy. Did they deliver? 
Yeah, so I'll I'll start by saying about James McAvoy. I think what I liked about Split is that right. So so you know, obviously you know they cast this guy as a, as a you know a, a character who has twenty three different personalities. I mean, it's pretty impossible to play somebody who has twenty three different personalities without the performance coming off as over the top. But I think that they did it pretty well in Split because we didn't see like every single personality. Right? It wasn't like one end of the spectrum to another. Um, you know, we really just had about six or seven of the, of the different personalities circulating in and out. And, you know, to McAvoy's credit, I think he does an, a great job of, of portraying many of them. You know, I mean, you know, Scott, how much I hate uh, movies where grown men act like children. But I think that Hedwig, the, who is the nine-year-old boy that is one of his personalities, one of the more prominent ones, it's one of the more enjoyable, uh, you know, characters that McAvoy plays, if you want to think about it, you know, as playing different characters, which, I mean, he certainly seems to be. And, and I think, you know, a lot of that is a credit to, to McAvoy's performance. However, I will say that I think this movie did sort of take it too far over the top at, in places for no real reason. And right. And I mean, obviously, that's in the hospital scenes. We have the fact that these light flashes trigger him into a new personality. Like every time he sees the light flash, he becomes a new personality. And I felt, I just felt like there were some scenes where they were using this phenomenon to just say to James McAvoy, okay, just show off. Like here, do every single personality, just, you know, act the crap out of this, even though there wasn't a real reason for us to see, you know, all of these different personalities. It just felt like, you know, just a way for James McAvoy to show off his acting, which uh, was a little out of step with the movie. But that being said, I still think, you know, he does a great job and it's obviously a very difficult performance. So I think he he deserves a lot of credit creating enough distinct personalities, right? So that you know who it is when he's talking, you know, when it's Dennis, you know, when it's Patricia, you know, when it's Hedwig. And I think, you know, again, all of that is a credit to uh, to McAvoy's performance. And then I think Jackson and uh, Willis both balance it out nicely, right? I think Bruce Willis gives a nice understated performance just as he did in Unbreakable. And, you know, we, we've had problems in movies in the past with people who are too sort of understated or, or you know, are, are, don't show enough emotion in the character. But I think it works for this character of David Dunn, right? Because that's, that's the character. He's just this ordinary run-of-the-mill guy who discovers that he has this, you know, multiple really superhuman abilities. And so I think by being a little more deadpan in his performance, you know, Bruce Willis accurately conveys that. And then I think Jackson gives a really nice performance, even though, like you said, he's probably in the movie the least of the three. I think it's a performance we're not used to seeing from him because we're so used to when we see Samuel Samuel Jackson in a menacing role, he's usually, you know, the hellfire and brimstone preacher type character that he is in movies like Pulp Fiction and Django Unchained, you know, ranting and raving. But that's not really the type of menacing that Elijah is. He's more, you know, quiet. Obviously, he's confined to uh, his wheelchair. But he's, you know, Jackson still really conveys that this guy is a mastermind. And I think, you know, he uses that word. I think that's the perfect word to describe this Elijah Glass character because, on the one hand, there's things that he can't do because of his physical infirmity. But on the other hand, he's always plotting. He's always scheming. He's always figuring out ways to accomplish, 
you know, what people think he can accomplish and to, you know, outfox people who maybe have underestimated him. Uh, and some of the, you know, some of the nice scenes in the movie uh, involving him show the ways that he is able to outfox them. So I think each actor brings something new and fresh and different to the movie. And, you know, they all balance each other out very well to create a dynamic that, again, like I said, is really the strong point of the movie. Yeah, I think that I, I agree to your, just kind of quickly run back through some of the points you were making. I agree about your point about McAvoy and that there's that one particular scene with, I forget which orderly that comes in the room that he almost, you know, kills basically. Uh, I, I think it's the one who gets killed. Well, I guess they both get killed later, but uh, uh, it, I think it's the one who is, is the the nicer one, not the, not the rude guy. <laughs> but yeah, there's that one scene where he has him like running through the different personalities and it's, it's so unnecessary. Like you don't need that. In, that entire scene could have been cut and it would have been fine. But you know, everything else that you're saying is I totally agree. I think the understated role from Bruce Willis here, it, it, that sort of role often doesn't work for me. I just feel like it, it comes off a bit flat. But this character, you know, whether it's because I recent, you know, I rewatched or watched for the first time, I should say, Unbreakable last week, and and I thought that that personality type, that that deadpan delivery, worked perfectly for that character, especially in the context of his relationship with. Uh, with Robin Wright in that movie with his wife who in this movie has passed away in the previous, you know, sometime in the previous 15, 16, 19 years, whatever it's been. And I think that, at, you know, after that you have uh, Samuel. So, so that, that being said, I, I think that the understated delivery works really well because I recognize that type of delivery with that character. I think if you took this movie as a standalone, I think a lot of that performance might come off as off putting how understated it is. But because of the context of Unbreakable, I think that that it makes sense because it'd be weird then if, if you didn't have a continued understated role from Bruce Willis in this movie, even though you don't have that dynamic with his wife that I think drives a lot of that uh, understanding of why he's understood, like why he's more of the silent type, why he's a little bit more, um, you know, reserved in, in, in specific scenes. I don't know. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying there? Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, Unbreakable has that thread about how his wife didn't really want him to be the, you know, the, the big showman, the big football player, right? He, she wanted him to be something different. And a lot of the movie is about the sacrifices that he made in order to be with his wife. So I think, it, you know, it makes sense that this is, uh, you know, who he, who he has become because he's really given up a lot of what he loved in life to be with his wife. And, uh, you know, again, when you juxtapose the, that personality with, the superhero, the, the superhuman abilities that he has, it creates a really interesting dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. And then you know, Samuel L. Jackson, I think it, it is a very different role than you get. Of course, the, this original role came at a very different point in his career than than now, but it's not like he hadn't played, to your point, you know, OTT characters before with pulp, with the likes of Pulp Fiction. Uh, but I, I think it's it's now, I mean, even Nick Fury, right, in, in the Marvel movies, he's way more over the top, probably not the right word, for, that, for his description of, of Nick, for the description of his character as Nick Fury, but he's certainly not the brooding type as Nick Fury, and, and so to see this come back as Elijah, as Elijah Price um, or Mister Glass, I think that it's it's a reminder that that Sam Jackson has still has whatever you know a, a bunch of range that he does he just doesn't often have the opportunity to show off, right? And when when he does come out of his shell, you know, halfway to you know two thirds of the way through this movie, 
I think that you you get him in full flow, and I think that's really a sight to behold. And and you know, Sam Jackson still has it, in my opinion. Yeah, he absolutely does. Again, love him and everything, but I, I also enjoy seeing the different side of him here. Uh, because we are so used to seeing him in in one context. So I think he does a nice job. And, you know, maybe to talk about some of those supporting performances, um, you know, that you singled out, I believe you mentioned, you know, you mentioned Sarah Paulson, you mentioned Anya Taylor-Joy, also Charlene Woodard, if we're talking about, uh, you know, the female characters. Um, I don't know if you've seen this on Twitter going around, but there's been people talking about the fact that Charlene Woodard, who plays Samuel L. Jackson's mother, is actually younger than Samuel L. Jackson, uh, which is kind of funny. But how old is Samuel L. Jackson? I know, I know she's like sixty-five. She's sixty-five. He's seventy. Uh, and, but she did play his mother in Unbreakable as well. So I mean, that you know, consistency. Also, you know, Spencer Treat Clark, who replaced. That, yeah, oh, I was just gonna say. Also, like in Unbreakable, she only really appears in flashbacks. Yeah. Right. I don't remember her. Well, she, no, she appears. So at, you, you never really. She sorry. She appears at the end too when Bruce Willis goes to the gallery. Um, like right at the end of the movie oh, right. and he starts talking to her and she's like, Oh, you know, my son Elijah has been telling me about you. And so she does appear then as well, but mostly in flashback scenes. You're right. Yeah. So I was just trying to put that together. Cause that's wild. I was trying to think about that. And then, but yeah, yeah. And obviously she plays a more prominent role in, in glass um, in a supporting role, but you're, you're right. So it's not just Ani Taylor joy kind of alongside him in the supporting alongside Sarah Paulson in the supporting cast. You also have Charlene Woodard, and then to, you were about to mention Anita, uh, Spencer Treat Clark, who plays uh, more, at least, I guess, late teen, early, I guess, kind of the young adult version of Spencer, of, jo- of Joey Dunn. Yeah, I, I'm going to be honest. I didn't think he was that effective in this movie. Um, Agreed. I think Agreed. there were times when he just seemed to be getting in the way. Like in this final fight, there's one point where he like kind of steps in between Kevin Crumb and, and David Dunn. And I'm like, Dude, nobody wants to see you right now. We want to see Bruce Willis and James McAvoy fight. Like, get out of the way. So if there's a weak link in the cast, I guess I'd probably have to point to him. But, you know, for continuity's sake, I appreciate that they got him back. I think that Sarah Paulson's performance is is good for, for what it's trying to accomplish. I mean, she's supposed to be like the cold, unfeeling doctor, right, who she's very set in her ways that there's, uh, you know, no way these superheroes exist and that er, there's a, there's a logical explanation for everything. So, and I think she brings a nice, like even composed uh, manner to her character that, you know, really conveys the idea that she, you know, she's quietly confident that no matter what happens, you know, she's going to be able to explain it away. And, you know, as you pointed out, some of the ways which she does explain it away are, are somewhat convincing, right? Like, I mean, they almost, make you believe her for at least for a little bit. But I think, you know, she does a she does a nice job of portraying that, you know, that that particular demeanor, uh, which I think again works well when when compared to the three men who and their distinct personalities, I think, you know, she balances them out nicely as as I keep saying. But and then Anya Taylor Joy, I feel like is mis mis uh used here. Like she's not used enough. Um because I think one of the really good things about split was the dynamic between her and Kevin Crumb because she's like the one, you know, she there's an understanding between her and Kevin because of their the things that they the mutual things that they share in their personal backgrounds. And her character is so much different from the other girls that he kid, kidnaps in Split that I think, you know, her performance and her scenes with James McAvoy 
were really the most interesting part of Split for me. So I wanted to see perhaps her fulfill more of a role here. Um, and I don't know that I was really satisfied by what they did with her character. I mean, she has a couple of, of brief scenes with James McAvoy, but it really felt like they tried to cram in, you know, cram, cram her character back in simply based on the fact that she did survive. She did escape in the first movie. Uh, and I don't think that there was really the emotional payoff in the scenes between her and McAvoy like there was in Split. All, although, I mean, you know, she she certainly gives it her best. I mean, we've talked about her in movies in the past. She's very talented, and I look forward to, to seeing her in movies in the future. And that's probably why I come down on the side of, you know, she probably should have been in this more. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where, I guess, to just to start on what we were just talking about with Anya Taylor-Joy, it's one of those things where I thought she was fantastic in Split. I thought she was, you know, her icy demeanor Again, another in an almost uh, you know kind of again an understated role, uh, kind of consistent maybe across this this trilogy. I think that you you find that she is really strong in that movie, and I, not only is she not in this movie enough, but before you even start adding her to more scenes in this film, I want them to first find a way to use her properly because I did not at all like how she was used in this movie. I think it's one of those things where if I had to point to one character, that character again, character not acting that I thought was just totally off in this film. It's this character. There's just something really kind of disturbing, I think, uh, about the way her character is, is used in a sense that I I think, I think I get it where the, what they're trying to do with this character and say, Hey, you know, she is someone, you know, sorry for spoilers from split here (laughs) as if this entire movie doesn't spoil split just by talking about it to begin with. But like, you know, she is someone who experienced trauma with, you know, her, with her, you know, growing up with her uncle. And, you know, because she experienced trauma, she also, even though she's been kidnapped and, you know, attempts, you know, attempts to be killed by this other person, recognizes that this person is also a victim of trauma. And so has this empathy for this character inside of the fact that, you know, she was kidnapped and and almost killed and eaten (laughs) by this character. And I think that there, so from that standpoint, I think I kind of get it. There's another standpoint, which left me a little bit disturbed that there's some sort of like Nightingale syndrome aspect of, yeah. of this character, which really felt a bit off color. I think there just wasn't enough development from Split. And even and then, you know, if you want to carry it over into this movie, for me to be like, all right, I'm fine with you really hitting home this empathic side of Anya Taylor-Joy's character and, and trying to understand what trauma Kevin Wendell Crumb went through because you know towards the end of the movie that that trauma is is a really critical aspect but the problem is it's just left mostly unexplored throughout the rest of you know you know these past two movies including in glass and they kind of throw it in at the end which we'll talk about in a second but to me I, I had a real problem with the way this character was written into this story and I'm not even sure it's because they they just wanted to bring her back because she survived I think that Shyamalan probably really thought this character should be in this movie and is a critical part of the story I, I actually kind of believe that he probably thinks that this was like a, a important character for his film, but I just disagree. I think that it's not like if this character was going to come back and I would have been perfectly happy if it did, because again, I thought she was great in split, but it just not coming, not coming back in this way kind of left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth, I think. And especially at the end, which I'm not going to spoil yet, but like that final scene between her and James McAvoy's character was really just like, it also just let me wondering, like, did she know what was going to happen the whole time? I was like very kind of confused about how that kind of subplot ended. 
That being said, to kind of touch on the other characters, I agree in terms of acting, you know, the, the weakest link here is definitely uh, Spencer Treat Clark as, as Joey. I guess he, he is the actual actor from the first movie. Is that right? Yeah, he is. I can't imagine there's any other reason he's in this movie besides that because he's not a very <laughs> good actor. I'm sorry. Maybe I should watch him in other things before I make a judgment on that, but he wasn't very good. Well, I don't think he's been in many other things, to your point. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe that might be why. But anyway, I think that that's kind of a weak link. I don't want to dwell on that because I don't think it's worth dwelling on. But again, I kind of agree with you in saying that, you know, every time that he gets a, a chance on screen, then you're kind of left a little bit disappointed, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, I think, you know, the final character here, Charlene Woodard, I think she's good. She doesn't get that much time. And, you know, maybe there's elements of her arc that I just think are a bit confusing. She's a very enigmatic character, I think. I think you never really quite know what she's thinking. Whereas you, you at some point kind of kind of get everything that, that Sam Jackson's thinking, his character, Elijah Price. But you never really get inside the head and, and really think you understand what his mother is thinking, which it, it can be a good or a bad thing, but it is what it is. Yeah, I think, you know, regarding Anya Taylor-Joy, just to sort of wrap that up, I think they, they what they do in this movie, which I think kind of gets it wrong, and, and this is to your point, that they, they mistake the fact that these characters have an understanding for, like, the fact that the, they turn that into the characters, like, having an affinity for one another, which I don't think was really the right route to go, because, you know, if you look back at Split, like, yeah, so they have they have an understanding, but a lot of the time and a lot of the time in that movie, Anya Taylor Joy was almost using that to manipulate um, James McAvoy, and, you know, because I, you know she still wants to free herself. I mean, ultimately that's her goal. It's not sort of you know a, a Stockholm type syndrome or whatever where she falls in love with with James McAvoy in the first movie at least. Yeah, wait, what did I say? Um, did I say Nightingale syndrome? I meant it's the same. It's the same thing, I think. But oh, it is. Oh, okay, I, got it. It, it, or there's there are similar ideas, I think. But yeah, I I think that you know at the end of Split, it's like okay, she has an understanding. She understands why she did what why he did has done what he did, and you know why he is the way that he is. But I don't think that's necessarily to, to your point. I I don't know that it necessarily goes fully down the empathetic route. I don't think that she's like, oh, I know that you're actually a good person. Uh, because, you know, I've gone through similar trauma in my life. I think it's kind of like, okay, I understand, you know, why he's done what he did. Maybe that doesn't excuse it, but but here, yeah, you're right. Like, they, they take it way too far down the she's almost a love interest route, which I think is is somewhat inconsistent with what what we saw in Split. So, yeah, unfortunate that they misused her in that way. Yeah, fair enough. And then, you know, there are a couple other cast members but i think that probably rounds out what we want to talk about here for the cast and so we might as well move on to the plot you know it is it is a Shyamalan plot through and through you uh get exactly what you'd expect walking into it and to your point i, I was looking it up while uh while we've been talking the audience score for this is in the high 70s so again high 70s audience score to your point earlier you know mid 30s rotten you know critic score on rotten yeah. tomatoes so you can tell people are enjoying it you know and, and again i i think that i enjoyed this movie probably a little bit more than the critics have described it but maybe a little bit less than most other audiences are i'm not i'm not sure where i'll come out of it by the end of this discussion but yeah just want to round that point out before we do talk about the plot yeah i mean again i think the reason for that is because the movie delivers on mainly what you know people wanted to see which is the three 
major characters, uh, you know, interacting with each other and and a lot of fireworks in those scenes. I guess to to talk about the plot, I, it, it really all comes back to those that ending for me because you know I I did like the plot up until that point, uh, and I think you know it, it's it's as you as you described, it's a classic Shyamalan plot where you have lots of twists and turns, and I think a lot of them are working up until that point, right? Like we have a great bit with with Samuel L. Jackson where he tricks the orderlies into thinking, you know, but by rolling around in the hallway in front of the cameras um, and changing out the, the, you know, drug or whatever that they were administering to him in the surgery. And, and it's a really sort of gotcha moment that, you know, you don't see coming. But then we get into the ending, you know, this this huge fight scene that happens between James McAvoy, Bruce Willis, all basically everyone gets together uh, to the point where Samuel L. Jackson even remarks at one point, like when we see his mother, we see Anya Taylor-Joy, we see uh, Spencer Treat Clark, they all come running out of the hospital at one point. And he's like, oh, and here come the other main characters. Or, you know, it, in that sort of knowing way that we see throughout the movie where both he and Sarah Paulson's character both kind of, you know, are pointing out the the cliches of the superhero genre as they're popping up. But, you know, I said, I, I said at the beginning that there's really three twists and, you know, spoiler alert, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler alert. You know, the first one is sort of that... Kevin's father was on the train, East Ridge 177 or whatever it's called. East Rail. East Rail, East Rail yeah. 177. Yeah. That, that of course, Bruce Willis was on and, and survived. And, and that we know, you know, Elijah, Elijah Price was the one who set it up to derail because he was looking for someone with David Dunn's abilities. And I just didn't see why that was necessary. Like, I understand. Like, oh, totally agree. Totally okay, agree. Okay, it turns... I guess I guess the on, the only purpose it serves is to turn James McAvoy against uh, Samuel L. Jackson, but I think they could have done that in, in a much different way that like just wasn't confusing and implausible. Like that, you know, all three of these characters, you know, intersect by the same event. You know, this this train crash, and all, all three of these characters just just so happen. Uh, like, okay, it's fine. I understand. Like in the first movie that. Sam, Sam Jackson set it up to find someone like Bruce Willis. Like, I totally get that. I, I know a lot of people have a problem with the twist in Unbreakable. I didn't have a problem with it at all. I think it makes sense when you go back and watch the movie. But here, like, I don't see the purpose of it. Uh, and I don't think it, it makes a lot of sense because we don't really know that much about Kevin Crumb's father and the role that Kevin Crumb's father played in his life. I mean, obviously, we know the role that his mother played because she was the one who sort of abused him into, you know, becoming the person that he is. But I, you know, when they revealed this, I'm like, okay, so what? So what? His father was on the train. So what? You know, Samuel L. Jackson killed his father. And I feel like there's just a missing link there of why this particular, you know, twist matters. Yeah. So, because the thing is, I think that to, to try to create that link or maybe what, adopt the voice of what Shyamalan might say, I'm not going to say that I'm actually speaking for him here because he probably give a more nuanced answer than I will. But my understanding is that it's basically the, the connection here is obviously, okay, so you have Sam Jackson is responsible for killing his father. The death of his father is what caused his mother apparently to be abusive mm-hmm. toward him and like treat him horribly, which I mean, to me, it's just like, all right, it's one of these things. I think it's, it, so this, this is a product of trying to tie two movies together, which weren't written to originally be tied yeah. together. Right. So like you have this character created, which, which I understand was a character that he maybe had originally written for unbreak, uh, unbreakable, but then pulled because it didn't just didn't fit the, the tone of the movie or whatever it might be. And so he, when he rewrote this character for Split, 
or, or you know, recycled this character for Split. He made probably made changes to the character that you know made it fit less with what that original Unbreakable character would have would have been like, right? And I think one of those products is the fact that the cause of this is his mother being abusive toward him because it seems so far fetched to say like, you know what, you wouldn't have been abused by your mom if this yeah. guy hadn't killed your dad indirectly there's just it doesn't it doesn't tie up for me and i think that that's what they're trying to do and i see it and it doesn't yeah exactly there's too much dot connecting that you have to do and at a certain point like it just becomes messy and and you know the the links don't hold up uh and yeah i think you're absolutely right i think it it shows he's trying to force these two things together which he doesn't need to do right because like it's enough to say you know, that these, all these people exist in the same universe. Like, I don't think that that, I, I think that's fine in terms of a way to get all of these characters together. And, you know, again, I think it works when they're together because of the, you know, the different sides of the hero villain spectrum that they, they show up on. So I don't think you need, you know, to go even further than that and be like, oh, here's how these, you know, characters are all intimately connected by this same, you know, catastrophic event. Um, but then, you know, moving ahead to the next, I guess you would consider it a twist, but basically we find out that Sarah Paulson's character is part of some sort of secret society that, you know, is actively fighting against the role of, you know, super, superhuman superheroes in, in, you know, contemporary society. And that's why, you know, she, she's working so hard throughout the movie to, you know, convince these three characters that, their abilities aren't, there's nothing superhuman about them. They're, you know, there's a realistic explanation for everything that they've done. And I don't know, again, like, I guess it's fine. Like it, I I really had no feelings about this twist one way or the other. I wasn't like, oh, wow, I was shocked by it. But I wasn't like, oh, this is ridiculous. I'm kind of like, okay, great. Like it's, it's a secret society. We get one scene at the end with her, you know, in this restaurant with, uh, you know, ostensibly all of the other members of the secret society. But it really didn't, it didn't, it didn't, you know, make the movie better in my opinion, and it didn't make the movie worse. And so for that reason, I feel like, you know, I, again, I don't really know what the point of including it at all was. Like, I, if if it's not going to make the movie better, if it's not going to cause us to appreciate the movie more, I don't know if it was really necessary, other than to just drive home further, drive home the point of like, hey, you're gonna hit, you're gonna encounter a lot of people who are gonna tell you comic books and superheroes don't matter, but you know, they do matter. Uh, and I think they could have just as easily done that without introducing this whole secret society element to it. Yeah, it was just very strange to, 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 to quickly touch mm-hmm. on this before we move on to the last one. I think that it is so strange to have a anti-superhero or anti-superhuman cult. That's not cult. I shouldn't say that. A society organization to be introduced so late in this movie and like feeling like so out of the blue. It's one of those things where I guess it's one of those things that you could like, if you, maybe if you went back and rewatched this, you can be like, okay, I guess I kind of get it, but it just feels like a, a, a tw- he like wrote a, he wrote the first two thirds of the movie. And then it was like, all right, crap. I don't have a good twist in here yet. <laughs> I got to add another one. And like decided to write in this, you know, secret society of sorts of which, you know, Dr. Staple is a representative of, or is a member of however you want to phrase that. And then to your point, it doesn't make me feel either way. I guess I was like, all right, well, you know, this is happening. Oh, and then, I mean, we're full spoilers here anyway, so I not have to preface this, but like you get, you know, they kill uh, James McAvoy's character. They kill Bruce Willis's character. I mean, at this, at this point, Elijah's already dead. Bleeding because, out, yeah. Yeah, the beast had killed him at that point. Um, but it's just a really strange moment where like, okay, 
I'm, I guess I'm okay with these characters dying. It's not really what I expected. Cause it's not, you know, the trope of a superhero movie, really. That's fine. I, I can vibe. I mean, I can, I can get that and I can be into that. But then this entire, you know, element of the secret society, I was just like, wow, I'm not sure. Like, like this, this has become the linchpin of the movie. And, you know, this wasn't even a thing, even like five minutes before it started. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's such a, it's such a bizarre thing, thing to me. And it felt very forced in a way. And, and I think that's that point where I don't think it benefits the movie. I guess it doesn't really hurt the movie too much either. Cause I'm like you, I kind of felt very meh about it. But still, it just felt like it was an unnecessary addition when I thought that, like, one twist, even though I disagreed with the twist, you know, one twist, that first one where you find out that Kevin's father was on the train would probably have been good enough for this movie. Yeah, certainly. And, I mean, I think cer- certainly if you're going to introduce something like a secret society, this whole, you know, this whole thing that, I, you know, has evidently existed this whole time – it, it, it feels weird to introduce it in the last 15 minutes of the third movie in the trilogy. Yeah, and, and then also heavily implied that they over time they have they have done this before and will yeah. do it again as like other superheroes, uh, well, quote unquote superheroes or super or superhumans kind of surface and then you know they go and try to either one convince them that they're not superhuman or, or two kill them and and that just seems it's not that it's far fetched because I mean there are of course people in society who will roll their eyes all the time and be like, oh, this is just such nonsense about like, why do people spend so much time reading about superheroes? They're not real, whatever, whatever. I'm not, I'm not saying that's not a good metaphor for society, for like parts of society. I just think it's a, a, a weird addition at this point and also has weird implications for this universe. Yeah, agree. And then, you know, to talk about that last twist, this is sort of the one that really brings the movie home. And that's, we find out that Elijah Again, similar to the the part in the movie that I liked earlier, he has set up this whole thing where, you know, he never actually intended to blow up the tower, which is what he he made them think was his plan. And really, he just wanted this exact fight to ensue and for, you know, all of the cameras to capture it so that then his the descendants, so to speak, you know, the 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 supporting characters can pass it on to the rest of the world and and they can really expose you know, Sarah Paulson and, and the rest of the people at the hospital for murdering at least Bruce Willis and, and James McAvoy's character. And it just seemed like, again, very, impo- very implausible, very asking you to connect a lot of dots. You know, I understand that he's the mastermind, but still, it seems very unbelievable that he could engineer this to go down in the exact way that it went down, right? Like, for, for his plan to work, everything has to happen exactly as it happens at the end of this movie. And it's it, it just seems very unbelievable that he would be able to predict exactly what was going to go down and that, you know, s- simply by not going out the, you know, side entrance, by going out the basement or whatever, he creates this whole series of events, which leads to, you know, the final scene, which I, I will say, even though I didn't like how we got there, I did enjoy, I did like the final scene. I think it, it hit the right emotional beats in the end, but even for a character as as conniving as Elijah, it just seemed very far fetched to me. I also just thought it was weird that these three supporting characters kind of come together. Yeah, at the end. Yeah, again, it, but, it's yeah, it's kind of you know, like I said, he points out he's like, oh, and here come the other main characters. Almost you know, if it it almost like it is you know a superhero cliche. He's recognizing it. But, you know, I've said this before, just because you're pointing out the cliches doesn't make 
doesn't mean they're no longer cliche or that, you know, they don't hamper the movie. So. Yeah. I don't know if I have too much more to, to add about this, but I've heard things about Shyamalan maybe being like, Oh, if there's an appetite for it, you know, if, if I have another good story to tell, maybe I'll add something to this universe. But you know, for the, at least for the time being, this is the conclusion of this trilogy and, and, you know, turning the page on this universe, Scott, do you, you've already said that you don't really like like the, 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 or at least this universe or this trilogy deserved a better ending, but where do you fall kind of ultimately in the grand scheme of things of this? I think it's a good trilogy. I will return to these movies. I mean, especially unbreakable. I, I love unbreakable. I, I mean, I, I definitely envision myself watching these movies again. And I think, I, I mean, I agree with what you said up front that there's probably five hours of a really good movie here. And I think, you know, when you think about most trilogies, I don't know if you could say that, that the percentage of good movie in there is as high as it is in this uh, trilogy. So ultimately, even though there, there were things about Glass which frustrated me and, you know, those twists didn't hit the way that I wanted to, I think this was a solid trilogy. And, you know, I, I think M. Night Shyamalan, it, for, for some of his faults, I think he is a very interesting and original filmmaker. And I hope that he keeps making movies like this because... I want original uh, movies like this that ask questions and maybe don't always succeed, but they're doing something very different and creating their own universe without, you know, a, a known property to go off of, like, you know, a, a Marvel or DC or Star Wars or whatever has. Sure. No, I, I think that I think that's fair and agreed that if you, I think it just falls short in the in the pivotal moments but otherwise is a really good trilogy. And, and that's probably why just in terms of, you know, relative good content to bad content in this, it, it's, it's high for what like, you know, the ultimate ratings of these movies might shake out as, and I'm not talking about our ratings, Scott, I'm just talking about critic ratings. So yeah, no, I think it's good. And I think with that, we can probably enter our you know, wrap up phase here. Scott, what was your favorite scene from glass? I really like the scene where I, I it's really, I think Sam Jackson's first speaking scene in the movie where he goes into Kevin Crumb's room at night while they're in the hospital still. And, you know, he's telling him about how he's going to basically, as long as James McAvoy brings the beast out tomorrow night, then they can escape. They're going to get out. And I really like, you know, some of his monologuing in this scene about, you know, the the overarching themes of the movie about, you know, superhero culture and and stuff like that uh, really hit home uh, in this particular scene. And then, of course, you know, the ending of the scene is one of those moments where I think it, with a worse actor or you're with a, in a worse movie, it could have gone badly, could have been really cheesy and dumb, but comes off really well in this movie when he asks him what his name is. And Sam Jackson just says, first name, Mr. Last name, Glass, and then rolls away. And I was like, heck yeah. I was sitting there like, heck yeah, in the theater, uh, because I think yeah, they played it exactly right. And Sam Jackson, you know, de- delivers it really well. So that was a satisfying moment for me. Agreed. I think that's, I mean, if you had to pick like one three second clip, it's definitely, definitely that line. Uh, he delivers it well. Cause you're right. That, that is the line where, you know, that could be the, do you bleed line from, for this movie? I, I don't, I know you haven't seen BVS still, Scott, but uh, that, that line can really get some derision if it's not delivered in the right way. But Sam Jackson has that, has that star power, that delivery power to really nail that line. He did it. He did it in this movie for sure. So I think that my favorite scene, you know, if it's not that one liner, right? I think my favorite scene probably is that showdown that you're that you're expecting, you know, at the end of the movie, that culmination when you have it's even in the trailers, right? You have the beast sort of I don't even know how to describe it, 
galloping, running at Bruce Willis, and then uh, they, you know, they collide. They're, the fight starts. It's really what the entire movie is building up to, and it's what you. I mean, ultimately, it is what you come to see in the movie. And I think that scene does does deliver for the most part. I think there. I mean, that being said, there are moments within that scene that are kind of like, oh, I roll a little bit whenever you know you have. I don't know if it's Pri- Elijah or telling the beast or whoever it is that he's like, oh, throw throw him in the big water tank. His weakness is water. Whatever. That was kind of weird. Um, but nevertheless, I think that's a it's a really cool scene. That and I think that if, since that is what the movie had promised, I think it delivers on it pretty well. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. Six point eight. I think uh, a, a solid if unspectacular conclusion to a very interesting and thought provoking trilogy of movies. Yeah, no, I think that I think that score is pretty fair. I'm coming out in, in that general area. I'm coming out a little bit lower though, six point five, just because I think that uh, there are elements of this movie that really uh, I didn't like, and and first and foremost, kind of being you know, some of, some of the way the ending is handled and also Anya Taylor-Joy's character in the movie is something that, that was a particular negative, negative for me, but you know, I still worth seeing, definitely worth seeing the trilogy for Unbreakable and for Split. And, you know, at that point, it's probably not that much more of an investment to go see this movie for another two, two hours, two hours, five minutes, whatever it might be. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think again, if you like those movies, there's a lot to like in Glass as well. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Well, that should just about do it for our discussion of our first official movie of 2019 here on the Some Like It Scott podcast. We're now going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing what might be our last official 2018 movie, and that is If Bill Street Could Talk. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, the second movie we're discussing today sees writer-director Barry Jenkins craft his follow-up to his Best Picture winning outing for Moonlight back in 2016 with another movie steeped in themes of race. If Beale Street Could Talk follows the story of Tish, played by Kiki Lane, as she tries to juggle a pregnancy with the fact that the unborn baby's father and her beloved, Fonny, played by Stephen James, has recently been arrested and jailed for a crime that he claims to not have committed. With an all-star supporting cast, including Golden Globe winner and potentially Oscar favorite Regina King playing Tish's mother, Coleman Domingo playing Tish's father, and Brian Tyree Henry playing one of Fonny's friends, now a parolee, this movie unravels its narrative non-linearly in a series of flashbacks that tell an emotional and beautiful love story alongside an at-times heartbreaking drama. Scott, no puns this time around in my setup for you. What did you think of this film? Did it take you on an emotional journey with these characters? Yeah, definitely. So I think I, I completely understand after watching this movie, you know, why it is getting the awards hype. And if anything, it, it makes me even more disconcerted about the fact that Bohemian Rhapsody took that Golden Globe uh, home, because I think this is a, an extremely well-made movie, uh, really in every aspect from, you know, the acting, uh, the writing by Barry Jenkins, uh, his his adaptation from the the novel by James Baldwin. The cinematography by James Laxton is really captivating. The music by Nicholas Bertel has been widely praised and for good reason. It's we talked about it sort of on the last episode or, or on another episode recently. How it, it's kind of one of those movies where there's the, the musical score is always just there. Like 
you, you don't even notice it sometimes because it's so much a part of the movie. It's so much a part of like the atmosphere that this movie works to, to, to establish. And I think, you know, that's a good thing to Nicholas Bertel's credit. And I think like, it's one of those movies that sort of just defies genre, right? Like, yes, there's a lot of romance in it. It's a very romantic movie. You know, you've described it as a beautiful love story. I think that's, that's very fair. I mean, Beauty and, you know, aesthetic qualities are something that is not lacking at all in this movie, even if sometimes those do overshadow the story or overshadow maybe when the story does go into formula a little bit, which I think is rare. And I I, I think I don't want to, you know, overstate that the movie does that. But if there are flaws in the movie, that that would be the area that I would point to. But, you know, there's also sort of... uh, there's a sort of tension to some of the final scenes, you know, when Regina King goes to, uh, is it Puerto Rico? Uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a, there's some real suspense about that, those scenes and there's comedy as well, uh, which you may not expect, but there are some funny scenes early on and there's a lot of heartbreak and a lot of sadness as well. Um, so it really, you know, takes you on an emotional journey in the same way that, you know, to mention another movie from last year, a star is born, right? Like, after watching A Star is Born, you really get the sense that you have been on a journey with these characters. And I think you get the same thing in this movie, uh, you know, where you, you you learn about the beginning of this love story between Tish and Fani. And although you don't go to the actual end like you do in A Star is Born, uh, you know, we span like a, a number of years in over, over the course of this movie. And, you know, as an audience member, you feel like, you, you you feel those years as they go by uh, because you are so invested and because the movie gets you so captivated in their love story. And yeah, again, performances are really successful. And this is just uh, another movie which is going to f- further establish Barry Jenkins as one of our best directors. Um, I think that's really the main takeaway from this movie. When you walk out of the theater, I can't imagine anyone saying to themselves, even if you don't enjoy it, um, that it wasn't an extremely well-crafted movie because that that's really the o- overriding emotion that I felt coming out of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. I think that if, if someone asked me, what was the most beautiful, um, whether, you know, and with that being a loaded term, right, in terms of um, emotional resonance, I, I think this movie might be the most beautiful film that I watched in 2018. And that's not just because of the visuals, it's the experience, the visceral experience of watching this movie you know, is it my favorite movie of 2018? No, you know, if if I really sat down and thought about it, I think it would probably, it would maybe crack my top 10. It would certainly crack my top 20. Absolutely. But I think the, the overarching um, feeling that I got from this movie is that it's, it's just beautiful. Like that. It's not, it's not even that it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And I, I just, I know I keep repeating that word and because I think that just captures it. You know, you know, you don't know anything about these characters going into the movie. In fact, you probably don't know anything about these actors and actresses, uh, or at least the, sorry, I should say, particularly, you probably don't know anything about Kiki Lane or Stephen James going into this movie. And, and and I think that really serves this movie. Well, you don't know, you don't have an association, or at least most people will not have an association of these act, you know, these two actors in with any other role you're going to like, when you see them on screen, they are Tish and they are funny. And that's like what you know them as. And I think that works for this movie so well. It, it's not like, Moonlight, where, you know, again, it was Mahershala Ali's first Oscar, but like when you went to watch Moonlight, you probably recognized Mahershala Ali. And I think that the fact that these, you know, main, these two lead acts, uh, these two lead performances are, are unknowns 
really services this movie well. And, you know, the fact that I'm calling them two unknowns, I don't think I uh, shouldn't undervalue their performance in this movie either. And yes, they're, they're not going to be nominated for, you know, for Oscars for these roles, I don't think. And at least no one's talking about them getting nominated. That being said, I think they play their roles really well. Yes, I do think there are better performances in this movie from two of the supporting roles, uh, particularly. But I think that that's still, you do get that visceral feeling from these characters. And that's not just because of the way they're written, although that is a huge part of it. It's also because of their performances. And one thing that also I want to talk about now, because I don't know if it fits anywhere else in our conversation, Scott, is that this film felt really theatrical. And I don't mean that in a way that, I, that I'm saying it's overacted. I think that it, it feels like this could easily be made into a play. Is that something that like struck you at all? Not just in terms of like maybe the dialogue itself, but just the way that the, the scenes were staged in a way. Yeah, definitely. Like on, on the one hand, you have a lot of scenes which are like, you know, you're in a house or you're on a setting that could be, you're in a setting that could be easily constructed on a stage and it's very dialogue heavy and, you know, you have a lot of big personalities and stuff. So I agree. I think, you know, at to- there are times when this movie feels like a play, but I think that Again, for for the reasons we've talked about this, you know, the cinematography, the visuals, the music, I think all of that adds necessary elements to the cinematic experience of this movie, which makes which which makes this ultimately more of a cinematic experience than a theatrical one. And I think makes this movie succeed beyond something like even though I liked Fences, you know, that's a movie which comes to mind to me as where it never really escapes its roots as a play. And obviously, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, Beale Street doesn't have the same roots in a play. It was a novel. But I think that they do a lot to add cinematic qualities to this movie so that it doesn't feel too claustrophobic. It doesn't feel like you're watching a play for very much of the movie. Yeah, no, uh, agreed. I think that the cinematography of this movie, you mentioned James Laxton. I think that, you know, there's I was talking about in Glass how I didn't necessarily always love the intimate cinematography of the movie, the really kind of really up in your face, first person kind of camera shots that we got in that movie. But in this movie, I think that it complements what Barry Jenkins is trying to accomplish perfectly. Like these for li- literal first person shots where you have, you know, through the eyes of, you know, whether it's Fonny or whether it's, or whether it's, um it's Tish. I think that those shots where you have them, you know, looking at each other, you know, what they're walking down the street and looking at each other, you know, insert, location, you know, whether they're, you know, it, at Fonny's apartment or, or wherever it might be. I think those shots between the two of them, because that's often when they're used, really contribute to the, the, that, what I was talking about, that beauty of the movie, right? Like the, the emotional love story, you know, you're often getting these particular scenes in those flashback sequences that I was referring to in, in the setup for this. And it works so well. I think in, in one thing, speaking of that, I think is that's really great out of this film is that there's a, there is a clear difference in my mind when you see how the film is shot in the flashbacks versus how the film is shot when you're in sort of the, the current events timeline, right? I think that you do get the sort of ethereal, ethereal is maybe not even the right word, but I think it's the closest word of what I'm looking for, kind of ethereal cinematography, maybe more ethereal uh, setting, you know, background sort of score to the film and those, and that's, you know, that idea of a love story about these two people who have been friends for their lives, for their entire lives are falling in love and really do love each other. Of course, I think that, you know, there's a maybe a deeper discussion to be had there around that relationship, which we may or may not go into uh, for the purpose of this podcast. But I think that 
the the break in the cinematography between there and then obviously the cinematography when you know a lot of the times it's font it's uh sorry tish and maybe you know her mother or tish and her entire family or you know the two fathers or you know regina king's character going to puerto rico it's a very different feel to the well, not only the the vision of the film but you know ex- actually how it's executed in the cinematography and the score and you know we talked about a movie earlier in 2018 that didn't do uh, a non-linear structure very well in terms of flashbacks and this movie is the exact opposite i think it absolutely nails the non-linear uh back and forth structure of switching back and forth between the timelines yeah, totally. Because it doesn't take you out of the moment. It always feels like it's adding very necessary elements to the story. And you don't have the same juxtaposition and tone that you did in that other movie, which, you know, we shall not name. You, If you listen to the podcast, you know what we're talking about. But uh, I, I agree. I think this is a movie where flashbacks and voiceover as well, right? I think yep, they use yep. voiceover so well in this movie. I know we tend to crap on voiceover a lot. And I think it, it may cause some people to be like, well, do they eat, like voiceover in any context? Yes, this movie uses voiceover very well uh, because, again, it first of all, the, the beauty of the language. I imagine many of these voiceover um, segments are taken actually straight from Baldwin's uh, book just because of the language that's used. Uh, but also the fact that they're still moving the movie forward, right? They're not um, adding in unnecessary details that could be established by, you know, the storytelling in the movie um, or that have already been established by the storytelling in the movie. uh, They're adding something unique to the movie, which can only be conveyed by voiceover. Yeah. I think a good way to describe it is that no one's narrating the movie to me in the voiceover, Yeah, which I think is exactly how I felt in Aquaman, which is the kind of the last movie that that did it, that we talked about on the podcast. Yeah. Or Vice. That's true too. I forgot about that. I'd already repressed that memory. I think that in those, you know, in those two movies, what I'm getting is not any, is not any additional, quote unquote, like voiceover, what I'm getting is someone narrating the events that I'm watching. And I don't mm-hmm. need that in a movie. I'm not, I listen to audiobooks. Like if I wanted that, I wouldn't <laughs> go to a movie. Uh, I would just listen to an audiobook, which is fine. Like I'm not complaining about that. It's just that it's, it doesn't add anything to my experience in the movie. And in this one, I thought it added a lot to the, to what I was watching. It complimented rather than tried to like supplement, supplement that's a yeah. good way to put it. Uh, I, you know, if for some reason you decided to close your eyes in like the first two minutes of Aquaman, great, because you're, you're, you're being read what's on the screen. But in this movie, the two things interact, combine to form what's what you're actually, uh, experiencing in the, in the theater. And that's the difference. And I think that it, it is really difficult to do that in a movie, I think. And the fact that this movie does it well, and it's why we often end up to your point, crapping on, on movies that do voiceover. Uh, do this sort of narration, but this movie gets it. And you're right. I absolutely agree that I, I mean, I haven't read a Phil street could talk by James Baldwin, but I imagine that a lot of those voiceover segments are direct pulls from the book. Yeah. So I think now is probably as good a time as ever just to jump right into uh, the, the cast itself here. And why don't we start with our two leading performances? I, you know, I mentioned that they're relative unknowns. They have acted before. It's not their first films, but I think it's probably fair to say that these like this, this movie will be their breakout film, so to speak, at least in terms of you know mainstream uh, consciousness and, and people being aware of these performances. And that is Kiki Lane, who plays Tish, and Stephen James, who plays Fani. Scott, what did you think of these two performances? Yeah, I think they're great. You know, in the context of this movie, I understand. You know, maybe why they're you know they aren't getting Oscar buzz. They maybe they don't have quite the polish of of some of the other performances we've seen. And in this movie, I think 
a lot of the supporting performances are the ones which you come away talking about. But I think they anchor the movie really nicely. Uh, I think Kiki Lane shows a lot of range with her performance um, because on the one hand, you know, you have someone who is in, kind of childlike in a way. Like she, you know, she doesn't have a uh, formal education. That's pointed out, you know, multiple times in the movie. And, you know, she's experiencing when, when, when she's, you know, as she's going through this love story with, with Fani, she's experiencing a lot of things for the first time, experiencing a lot of new feelings and emotions. But at the same time, she knows how to handle herself, right? Like she has street smarts, even if maybe she doesn't have book smarts. Um, and we see her, you know, in some scenes, like early on that really fiery scene between the two families the you know, Fani's family and Tish and her family at, that happens at Tish's Tish's family's uh, apartment. You know, she holds her own in this sort of war of words against Fonny's family. You know, she 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 shows a lot of range, like I was saying, because we we really see uh, different sides to her character, um, and we see how you know the way she has been raised and the experiences that she's had living where she lives in Harlem uh, have really shaped the person that she's become. And as for Stephen James, I think he does a nice job too. Um, I think I think he gives an emotionally effective performance um, as this guy who, you know, early on in the movie, maybe he's trying to he's trying to put on a face for his wife. Uh, I guess they're not married, really, but um, for, for Tish uh, and, you know, the fact she's pregnant and, and, you know, put put on a face for her. Let her know that that he's doing OK in prison um, while she's obviously going through a difficult time. But as we see. I think the character changes over the course of the movie in the way that he opens up to Tish. And, you know, early on in the movie, even even after these scenes, you know, Tish tells Bonnie's father, you know, you can see he's not doing well. And we start to see, I mean, we really see prison wearing on him as the movie goes on. And I think Stephen James conveys that really well to the point where he's basically becomes desperate late on in the movie you know, by, by saying he, he has to get out of this prison or he's going to, you know, he's going to die basically, or, or it's really not worth living if he doesn't get out of this prison. So I think he does a nice job of in those scenes of conveying, you know, the, the toll that prison takes on a person like Fani. Yeah. I think that it, that is to your point, really, really wonderful performance there. Cause you know, mo- most of his screen time is of course coming in the flashback sequences, which are substantial. It's not like that's not an insubstantial part of the movie. It's at least half, if not more of the film. But that being said, in in the present day in in the present day timeline, you have him, you know, entirely kind of on the other side of that screen when when Tish visits him in prison, and you're, he's able in those few moments, right, that that we get to see him on screen, he's conveying you know everything that's happening in between the visits that Tish is making, and I think it's it's a really, I I hesitate to call it masterful, but I think it's still a really strong performance by him. And to your point and this kind of gets into the narrative arc maybe more so than the actual uh, character and performance itself. But I, I think that you see prison to your point, prison wear on him a lot to the point where by the end of the movie, he, you know, he decides to take a plea deal. And obviously, you know, he's so exhausted by the process and, and you know, the way the movie displays it, of course, an unfair process for a crime that it, the movie portrays as there's no way he committed. And I mean, obviously that's kind of the racial element uh, or racial theme from the movie and how black people are, are treated by the uh, criminal justice system. And, you know, it, it doesn't quite in it, at any point, I feel like take to center of a stage in this film. I think that center stage remains for these two people's love story and, and how, you know, the society, you know, whether that be 
you know, black people in a white society or just black people in their own and, and you know, have their own kind of nuclear family. Cause there's so many scenes that you see play out between, you know, Fani and uh, Tish's families or Tish's families uh, or Tish's family, sorry, uh, alone that I think are, are really momentous uh, over the course of the narrative arc and really deliver a lot of power and, and emotion to the, to the story that's already chock full of emotion from the love story element that's happening in the flashbacks. And so I, I think that in, in that sense, you really have these kind of two, I guess these two lead performances are a really great medium for delivering that story and they do their jobs well, if not uh, masterfully. Yeah. I, I couldn't sum it up better myself. Awesome. So why don't we, I mean, you mentioned when you were talking a few moments ago that the supporting performances are maybe the ones that people walk away talking about. And, and I think, you know, if there's one in particular that you're referring to, it has to be Regina King who won the golden globe for best supporting actress uh, just, you know, almost, you know, two, three weeks ago. And, you know, her performance as Tish's mother, her name's Sharon in the movie uh, was really strong. She plays a, a key part in what is, what is my favorite scene in the movie, which we'll talk about. Uh, by the end of the uh, uh, by the end of this um, this segment for sure, but uh, you know, one I guess let's just start with that. Let's talk let's talk about that performance and that performance alone, and then we'll branch out to some other uh, supporting roles. Yeah, so here's what I'll say: like I was go- going into the movie, having heard so many good things, I was expecting to be blown away by Regina King's performance, and I don't know that I was blown away, but I do think that she gives she's really strong, and and I understand why people have gravitated towards the performance because. Regina King is someone who just cuts a very powerful presence on screen. Uh, I mean, the the moment she comes on screen, she like commands respect and commands authority. Um, and I think that carries her a long way in this movie. You know, and, and I, ultimately, I don't know that I would say that it's my shoe in as best supporting actress in terms of my personal preferences. But I think it, it belongs in that top five for sure. Um, and she does have some great scenes, uh, you know, towards the end there, especially those Puerto Rico scenes, um, you know, first with the man that she, uh, it speaks with in the restaurant, um, you know, before going to see the woman who was accused Fani of rape. And then of course the scene with the woman uh, herself is pretty heartbreaking. Um, but yeah, it, I, for me, it's, it's all about that presence she has on the screen. I mean, I had a pretty vocal audience in the movie. Um, and at the end of the movie, you know, when she gets in that scene where she gets off the plane at, you know, in, in Puerto Rico, she's flown to Puerto Rico. She gets off the plane. We see her standing there in the runway and somebody sitting in the theater just, you know, yelled out, come on, Regina. And I was like, yeah, come on, Regina. Like it's kind of how everyone feels because like, uh, you know, if anyone's going to do it, you feel like Regina King is going to be the one who's going to be able to convince this woman, you know, to, uh, to drop these charges, to drop her claim. And ultimately she doesn't do it, which I think is one of the more interesting developments of the plot in the movie. Yeah, I can't, I, I actually am, am right in your boat here. I, I walked out of the movie theater and it was one of the things where like, I, you know, because everyone's like, she's the favorite for the Oscars. She won the golden globe. Uh, I really felt like you, I was, I was going to be blown away by her performance and I did love her performance, but I can't say that I was like, Oh, this is it. This like, there's no, it's an outrage if she doesn't win. I, I didn't feel that way at the movie. And that's, that, that's not to detract from the performance. I really do want to emphasize that because it is really strong. And I think that if there's one moment where I can point to be like, that's why she's going to win the Oscar. It's going to be those, the two, I think there's two scenes in Puerto Rico. One where she's talking to the man who's, who the, I forget both his on screen name and also his, um, 
his name as well in, in real life. But I think that was a really powerful scene. You can see, you know, I mean, she obviously she is the exemplar of motherhood in this movie for Tish as she kind of brings a baby into the world. And she's such a commanding presence to your point on screen. I couldn't imagine uh, getting someone who was going to sort of command more respect on the screen. And I'm not saying that Regina King as, as an actress always commands that level of respect. I just think in this movie, the way she carries herself, the way she delivers her lines, the way her character is written into the, the movie it is so perfect, I think. And I can understand why critics are, are, you know, gravitating to use your, to use your language, gravitating toward this performance as the best, you know, maybe if I sat down and thought about it and really hashed it out, she would also be my best supporting actress of the year. I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't done that yet. But that being said, it's a really strong performance. And again, we still haven't talked about what was one of my favorite scenes yet where she's at, where she's at, which I will hold off until uh, the end of the episode. But she's, or sorry, not the end of the episode, but the end of the segment. And she's just really, really great. But, you know, other than that, there's also a couple other performances. You have Brian Tyree Henry, who I've also already mentioned, who plays uh, Daniel Cardi, one of, Fonny's friends and he's a recent parolee and they, and they, the two of them talk about uh, prison and what that was like for Brian Tyree Henry's character. There's also Tish's father played by Coleman Domingo, who's not a name that I, I recognize in terms of casting, but I thought was a pretty strong performance. He's great. I wasn't yeah. Quite, yeah. I wasn't quite sure what to expect from his, from his performance and from this character. But by the end of the movie, I was like, that was really good. I really enjoyed it. And then one of my personal favorites, uh, Diego Luna, who every single year I look at Diego Luna's like what he's what he's going to be doing that year. And I'm always a little bit disappointed that he's not, you know, either playing more major roles or in more movies. But I, I really love Diego Luna. And I, I love like the five minutes that we get with him on screen. He plays Pedrocito, who's a waiter at, and one of Fani's friends at a restaurant that they Tish and Fani go to a couple times. Are there any other performances that you want to talk about? I know that you like Brian Tyree Henry's uh, performance in this movie. Yeah, I I don't know if you saw this, but like sometime in the past week or two, I'm not exactly sure when, but the New York Times put out an article that all their critics had written where they were saying that they thought Brian Tyree Henry should get an Oscar nomination for this movie, even though he's only in, I mean, you probably 10 minutes, legitimately probably 10 minutes of the movie. And he's I, one scene, basically. Yeah, no, and I, I honestly, I agree. Like, I think he, you know, we see such range in those 10 minutes, like, right? Like when he's first introduced, he's this, you know, sort of larger than life, big personality, you know, the kind of guy who walks into a room and, and lights it up, you know? And, and so w- we see that side, we think we understand this character. And then it gets totally turned on its head when, you know, as you said, they, they start talking about prison and we see, you know, he, go, he, he goes into this long story about his time in prison and, you know, the way that society, you know, the way that incarceration disproportionately affects people of the African-American race, people, a problem that we're still having, you know, 50 years after this movie is set. And, you know, it, it really comes out of nowhere um, in terms of what we know about the character, or what we think we know. Um, and it's, it's really so powerful. It's, it's probably my standout scene from the movie. Um, so I understand why he's getting the buzz that he is. Another performance I want to talk about, which you haven't mentioned, he's only in one scene, but Dave Franco really, uh, landlord. Yeah, he a really sort of unexpectedly emotional, one, emotionally wonderful scene. Um, another one of my favorites in the movie for sure. As right, this landlord, this guy who's trying to sell uh, a Jewish guy who's trying to sell a, an apartment, a house to to Fani and Tish, and 
you know, get there's just a really nice emotional payoff to the scene. And kind of like Brian Tyree Henry's character and performance, we don't expect the character um, to act the way that he does. Uh, and, you know, when, when he explains why he why he is the way that he is, uh, I, I thought it was really powerful. So those two performances, as well as Coleman Domingo, who I think gets some really good scenes, especially early on and uh, get, get some funny, funny lines too. one of the, the lines which brought down the house in my theater was, you know, uh, well, I guess this is actually uh, this is Fonny's father that said this. But when when they first uh, reveal to Fonny's parents that Tish is pregnant, and there's this sort of this long awkward pause, and then Fonny's father says to Coleman Domingo's character, "Like, well, we gonna get drunk tonight," and the whole place kind of erupted. It, it, it was a, it was a good moment, but w- well played by both of the actors in that scene. But yeah, those were my standouts. Yeah, Michael Beach plays Fonny's father. Yeah. Again, he's not he gets a little bit less I mean, he gets less screen time than Coleman Domingo, but I think they both do a really good job for their roles. Yeah, and they have a, a nice scene later on too in, in a bar um that really humanizes Michael Beach's character a little bit more because he seems kind of like an awful guy early on in the movie. But uh we we get a little more dimension to that character later on in this scene he has with Coleman Domingo. Yeah, I agreed on on kind of all your all your points here. I really enjoy Dave Franca's uh, brief stint in this movie. And then just to circle back around earlier, I couldn't remember who played the man that Regina King first talked to, to convince, to convince him to, to let her see, I forget the name of the, of the woman who accused Fawny's character of rape. Was it Victoria Rogers? Maybe. Can't yeah, remember. that sounds right. Yeah. I can't, I can't remember. Anyway, but that, that actor is Pedro Pascal. Uh, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't have forgotten. Oh, really? That that was Pedro Pascal. I did not realize that. You know, he's he's playing the Mandalorian in the Mandalorian. Indeed. I mean, we'll we'll see what if the main character that he's playing is indeed a Mandalorian. Oh, uh, yeah, not, that's but, true. You would think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You would think. Well, I, I mean, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, yes, right. But like that being said, but, but I mean, Boba Fett's not not a Mandalorian. But yeah. Either way, regardless, that will be a podcast much later. Much later this year, hopefully, when that comes out on Disney Plus. Anyway, that's yeah, that, that's Pedro Pascal. So I really should have cool. forgotten that because we've actually we've actually talked about him a lot. Uh, anyway, so moving on to the plot here, we, we've kind of already touched on it briefly. Nonlinear structure. You know, you have these flashbacks of their falling in love, and then you have the present tense of Fani having been arrested and the pregnancy uh, and the response to that. Scott, I mean. I mean, by by this point, our, our listeners should know that I really loved this narrative arc. Was what what stood out to you? And and I mean, also just to be frank, did you did you love it as much as I did? Maybe not quite as much as you did, just because I think the love story does fall into formula in a couple places. But I think for me, where the movie went in a really interesting direction that I wasn't expecting was in that segment where Regina King goes to Puerto Rico, right and. You know, we think we know where it's going, right? We think we know. We think that Regina King is going to be able to go in there, win over the the woman, convince her, you know, that she she was wrong, and that uh, you know, Fonny's going to suffer because of you know because of her her actions. Um, and it's not the way that it goes at all. Um, and instead, you know, the woman sort of comes back at Regina King, and you know, because obviously she suffered a lot too. She was she was raped. We just don't know by who. And so, you know, for, for Regina King to try and evoke sympathy for her son or for, for Fonny, rather, it doesn't come off in the way that she's hoping because, hey, look, 
the woman is suffering too. Maybe she's not behind bars. Maybe she's not facing life imprisonment in the way that Fani is, but she has to live with the shame of being raped for the rest of her life. And I think that the movie really looks at this in a really intelligent and uh, sensitive way that doesn't doesn't victim blame anyone or, and doesn't, you know, doesn't stigmatize any character um, and really gives a well-rounded perspective to every single side of what is obviously a very thorny issue and a thorny discussion. I can't credit Barry Jenkins and I guess James Baldwin enough for handling that issue in such a, such a uh, sensitive way. Yeah, I agree. It's obviously a, a very tricky topic. I think in the way it navigates it is, is actually quite, quite, um, Clever is not even the right word, but it's it's so it's very nuanced. It's very intelligent. You know, whether whether I mean, obviously, James Baldwin has done it himself in the book, but then also adapting that for the screen to your point, Barry Jenkins as as well here. And it's one of those things where you're absolutely right. You have you almost have three sides to this, right? You have one side that's uh, is, you know, the woman who has been raped. And, and, you know, not only I I shouldn't say I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I take exception to saying he has to deal with the, the shame of being raped, but certainly the societal stigma of being raped. I don't know if that's something to feel shame about well, yeah right but, that's that's what i that's what i meant like the the shame that she feels because of how society you know treats her as a result right I, absolutely no and, and agree with that totally and then you know to your point this element of you also have the other side where you know you have regina king who it's not her son per se that that has been accused of this crime but it is you know her daughter's beloved you know the the father of her grandchild and then you know also from this perspective of navigating this really tricky thing where there's all, again, I almost see two elements to this part where it's like one, where you have this problem of, you know, this woman was raped. We don't know by who, but this movie never questions whether or not she was raped, which I think is, is a really important part of this movie. And the second of course, is that, you know, this idea of, you know, police targeting black men and, and using whatever means they can to put them behind bars or, or get them into the criminal justice system here. And you have this police officer, I think it's Officer Bell, maybe is the officer's name, who had maybe it implies this, it doesn't explicitly say so, but had this run in with Fani and Tish, who were buying uh, groceries for dinner one night, sort of late on in the movie here, kind of later in the flashback timeline, and heavily implying that it is this interaction which Fani does get away from without being arrested that you know ultimately leads to Officer Bell using him as a scapegoat for this crime that was committed. You know, it doesn't make any judgment. I think on whether or not it might have been Officer Bell who committed the crime himself. Although I think that is a possi- a potential possibility that he might have been the one who actually raped the the woman. That, that again, that's not here to be necessarily discussed because I think it's a debatable point. Uh, but the important part being that Fani is ultimately the one who's scapegoated by this. Uh, presumably by this officer and it navigates it just so well that this narrative point and it doesn't necessarily provide you with answers because I think you're right. The, the, the real plot twist here is that Regina King isn't successful in, in convincing this woman to come back to New York and, and kind of recant her, te- her uh, identification of Fani as, as her, as her rapist. And I think that that was just a real twist in the movie that you don't necessarily see coming and then ultimately drives towards the, you know, the current timeline and then the end of the movie, which I'd like to touch on briefly where Fani, you know, ultimately kind of gives in to the pressures of the system and takes a plea deal, right? Like he, he ultimately sacrifices his claim to innocence 
just to expedite the process and, and come to a conclusion that will ultimately at some point down the line lead to him being released and being able to be with Tish. And, you know, at the, you know, during most of the movie, his unborn uh, child, but the, you know, the final scene, of course you have them all, all three of them in, in prison uh, together. I, I should say Tish and her son visiting Fani in prison. And I think, you know, to that point, there are a couple other scenes maybe worth talking about and, and occur in other subplots of, of the movie, but I did, I just thought the ending was really great. Yeah. And I think, you know, to go along with what you're saying, like, you know, you say there's really no answers to the issue of, you know, who, who really did rape this woman. And I think like, that's the point, right? Like th- there's no way because of how society is at this time, there's no way that this movie can be resolved in a satisfying way for all of the characters, right? Like, okay. So maybe the woman doesn't admit she's wrong. That's, that's how we get, uh, you know, Fani ultimately taking a plea bargain, um, even though he's probably not, I mean, he's not guilty. But at the same time, you know, obviously we, we sort of have more of a one-sided perspective because we are being told the story of Tish and Fani. But at the same time, you know, so let's say the woman does come forward and admit that she's wrong. You know, maybe Fani gets out, but where does that leave the woman? And I think that's, you know, what the, what that scene does very well is, really uh, gives you a, a more full, fully realized perspective on the whole issue uh, and, and, you know, helps you to see that because of the way society treats African-Americans and because of the way society treats women, there's no way that this can be resolved in a satisfying way. Absolutely. I think that you summed up exactly the points that I was trying to make so well that you know, this this movie presents, of course, it, its center theme here is is the race aspect, but doesn't neglect the the female, the gender aspect of it either and, and I'm and I was really satisfied with the way it navigated that question and I totally agree with what with what you're saying here. Yeah. Awesome. So I think probably unless there's anything else you'd like to add, we're ready to wrap this one up. Scott, what was your favorite scene from If Bill Street Could Talk? Yeah, I think it's gotta be one of those two that I've mentioned, you know, either the the scene with Brian Tyree Henry where he's talking about his time in prison. Very emotional and powerful scene. And also the scene with Dave Franco, which I love what Dave Franco brings to the scene. I also love the just the whole the whole scene of them in the uh, loft in the apartment uh, where Tish is having trouble envisioning the you know what the what the apartment is going to look like. Uh, how are they going to be able to furnish it in the way that they want to? And Fani and also Dave Franco's character go through this whole little charade of you know carrying in furniture and uh, you know just sort of acting out. Uh, for Tish, how exactly this is going to go down, and it's 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 a funny moment, but it's also uh, a really nice and and sort of a, you know heartfelt moment as well, uh, and that's really what I got from the the whole segment with Dave Franco. So both of those scenes, big standouts for me. Yeah, I agree. They're both really good scenes. My scene, which I've been saving, uh, you did briefly mention it earlier. We didn't discuss it very much, but it's the scene where both the families are, are together. They. I guess Tish's family has invited Bonnie's family over and the exchange. Once things really get going here is brilliant. It was, I just, I really loved the performances from everyone in that, in that particular scene, you have Ernestine, which in one of her few scenes in the movie, which is Tish's sister, uh, go toe to toe with kind of Bonnie's sisters that are, are very, uh, what is it? I, I don't even know if this is the right word, but like subservient to, Bonnie's and their mother, mm-hmm. who is quite a character in herself, kind of almost a religious zealot, almost kind yeah. of character who condemns 
both Fani and Tish for basically ruining their lives and saying basically that they're going to hell. And then you have this almost a brawl ensue where you have Fani's dad, which I, I mean, don't condone violence here. And I, I didn't like the scene because of this, but like slaps Fani's mother, you know, storms out with Tish's, Tish's father in, in tow, just to make sure he doesn't do anything, uh, doesn't do anything crazy. And then you have this exchange between Fani's sisters Ernestine, Regina King's Cara, Sharon, you know, Tisha's mom, and this where the language that cannot be repeated on the podcast. Yeah. But I was just like, oh my goodness, this is an amazing scene. Yeah. Some of the insults and claps clapbacks that get thrown out in this scene are are pretty fire. <laughs> I'm gonna re- drop those down in my uh, comeback book for whenever I need a good one when yeah. I'm texting with someone that I don't like. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's my it's my favorite scene, and I mentioned in my letterbox review that it might be one of my favorite scenes of the year, and I think I stand by that. It's just it, the dialogue there is brilliant. Yeah, it's a good one. Brilliant. All right, Scott, let's put a, let's put a score on if Bill Street could talk. Yeah, I think I'm with you that if we if I had to you know put this back in my list of top ten favorites, I don't know that it would quite make my list of ten favorite movies of the year. It would definitely be in that twenty. But if we're talking about the best movies of 2018, this movie firmly belongs in that top 10, and I give it a nine. Yeah, uh, you know, good score there. And I, I think that I'm somewhere in a similar ballpark. I was debating whether or not I wanted to go over nine or not for this movie. And the more I talked about it, the more I, I do like it. I'm with you that I'm rating this score higher than maybe my ultimate enjoyment was because I just really appreciate what Barry Jenkins is able, I mean, one, just his vision for the film is is, is amazing to behold. I, I think that he clearly has one of the best cinematic visions in, you know, filmmaking right now. And I just want to see what he's going to do next. And ultimately, I'm, I'm coming out at a 9.3. All right, Scott, that will do it for our discussion of If Bill Street Could Talk. Let's take another short break. And when we return, we have a few more things to discuss before we wrap up today's episode with some news. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part three of today's episode of Some Like It Scott. Scott, there's a couple other things that we want to mention in the world of, of media. They're not movies, but we have been watching some TV shows recently. And let's start with you. You've recently, well, I know not, no pun intended there. We recently, uh, you recently watched You, is my understanding. Yeah. So this is sort of the it show of the moment, really. Like everyone I've talked to at school and a lot of my friends and everything, like, have already burned through this season one. It's, and it's really easy to see why, because it's an extremely addicting show that originally aired its first season on. The Lifetime Network. Um, I think to, <laughs> I didn't even realize that. Is that real? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, I I looked that up before. I mean, I I had vaguely heard of the show before it dropped on Netflix, but it's really gotten a second wind since it dropped on Netflix, and it's actually going to be on Netflix going forward exclusively um, for for future seasons. But the first season uh, ha- has come out and has really blown up on Netflix. I saw where. It was like the most watched show for either the week or the month or something recently on Netflix. Uh, so it's doing really well. And it's yet another hit for a guy whose name we've mentioned a lot. Uh, and that's Greg Berlanti, who is the creator of the show, alongside Sarah Gamble, who I think uh, wrote the books that this is based off of. 
Now, the, the, the author of the books is Caroline Kepnes. Okay. Well, Sarah Gamble also created the show with Berlanti, but Berlanti's killing it right now between all of the TV shows, the, the superhero TV shows, Love, Simon, he had, which was a huge hit. Um, he, he's a big name right now, and this has another, been another huge hit for him. And like I said, it's easy to see why, because it's an extremely addictive show. Um, it's a set in New York. It's the story of a very torrid love affair between, uh, to, to say the least, between a guy named Joe who's a bookstore worker played by Penn Badgley and a, a girl named Beck um, played by Elizabeth Lale, who is a struggling wannabe writer and, and basically just someone who doesn't really have her life together and is searching for uh, meaning and searching for uh, a path in her life that uh, will take her to uh, a good place. And Joe, however, of course, you know this, if you've seen the trailers of the show is a stalker um, and when he first meets Beck in the bookstore, relentlessly stalks her on social media, uh, literally stalks her by going to her house and, and learning as much about her life as he can in order to insert himself into her life and, you know, become her her boyfriend and, and you know, something more ultimately is, is what he wants. And so it's a very provocative show, obviously, that asks a lot of questions about social media and how, how much of our lives we put on the Internet and Really, the uh, you know the dangers that the internet pose nowadays. I probably didn't uh, res- <laughs> relate to those issues quite as much because, to be frank, I don't look like Elizabeth Lale, so I don't think anyone wants to stalk me. Stalk me. Um, but I understand how the uh, the the show definitely has resonance. And if I had to describe the show, I would say that it's elegantly made trash because you know it's very over the top. It's very absurd. Um, there's people get murdered. There's a lot of, you know, really uh, steamy sex scenes. Um, but also like got to love lifetime. Yeah. But also like by the fifth or sixth episode, I was like, whereas before I was just sort of enjoying it on a visceral level and like, you know, popcorn entertainment level by like the fifth or sixth episode, I was like, dang it, this show's actually making me think about things now. And the way that it treats the Joe character in particular, like to the point where you wonder if it wants you to feel sympathy or empathy for him in some way, which is, you know, also, which is sort of problematic, but also like very thought provoking is, is all I'll say. It, it doesn't do it in a sleazy way. Um, lest I confuse that. Um, it, it does it in a way, like I said, that really makes you think and ask questions about, are there people like this in, uh, in society? I think the answer is definitely yes. Um, the way that Joe justifies what he's doing, I think, you know, ra- raises a lot of questions, but again, that like it, there are some positive elements to his character as well. So it, it's a three-dimensional character, even if you know he he may come off as you know just a, a straight-up creep for you know large parts of the show. And I think that is also a credit to Penn Badgley, who I think does a really nice job of making us. I don't want to say care about the character again. This is this is what I mean. Like the the conflict that it causes you to feel is one of the most effective parts of the show, but. It makes you interested in the character and like want to follow the character, even though uh, he's obviously a creep. He's obviously doing very bad things. He's he's a classic anti-hero, I guess. Uh, if you if you want to use the word hero, um, I th- I think you could you could classify him as an anti-hero just because of the way he makes you think about you know your own perception of people. And Elizabeth Lale also nice job. Um, she my fun fact about her is that she attended the UNC School of the Arts, which is actually here in Winston Salem in downtown. Uh, so yeah, shout out to UN, UNCSA, um, right here in Winston-Salem. 
for, for producing, uh, someone who's on a big show right now. Um, she does, she does a really good job though, as well as Beck, a, a character who is sort of a mess and all over the place, but also knows deep down, knows what she wants to the point where, uh, it, it definitely creates some tension between her and Joe as things are slowly revealed. Um, and you know some other supporting performance supporting performers of note. Shay Mitchell, who we know from Pretty Little Liars, um, shows up as it, it, a really fun and fun role for her as it, the manipulative and uh, conniving best friend of Bex. Her name is Peach Salinger. She's a, she's a distant relative of J.D. Salinger, um, which is kind of a, <laughs> just a weird little thread. But um, she does a really nice job. John Stamos also appears because why not? Um, as a therapist later in the show, and he, he makes the most of his supporting role. Uh, but yeah, I have to say, I'm not going to spoil anything. But the ending of the the season let, definitely leaves me with some questions, and I think a lot of whether I go with the show in season two will depend on how it answers some of these questions in season that that it poses at the end of season one. Um, so, but yeah, definitely worth a watch. Um, very, you know, entertaining on a visceral popcorn level, but also forces you to ask questions of yourself, even if you don't realize it until a little bit later on. Uh, so yeah, elegantly made trash, like I said, and I understand why people are watching it. It's very addictive. Hey, I mean, th- this show had like averaged about like 600, 700,000 viewers when it was on Lifetime. And uh, well, I'm sure it's, into the tens of millions on Netflix. It's re- it's really the perfect Netflix show too, right? Because you can watch it on your computer. You can binge watch the whole thing in two days or whatever, and and not really feel bad about the fact that you, uh, you know, spent all of this time watching a, a lifetime show. A show like like I said has a lot of trashy elements to it. Um, I, I think it's perfect for Netflix, and I understand why it's succeeded. Well, Scott, you are going to get season two. I imagine yep. Netflix is probably trying to expedite the the filming of this and, and get that on onto their platform because it is a big hit right now. Absolutely. All right. The other thing we want to talk about is a little bit for me. I watched a very English scandal, which I think I, I briefly referenced in our last episode, you know, starring Hugh Grant and Ben Wishaw, who won the golden globe for best supporting actor in a limited series uh, or a TV movie. And I, I can understand why I ultimately wasn't really vibing with his character. I guess I should give a little more background. You know, this is based on a real life event of, I believe that Ben Wishaw's character's name is Norman Scott, who or Norman Joseph. He changed his name at some point uh, during his life. But, and this character has a steamy romantic affair with a MP in Parliament in in the UK, who's Jeremy Thorpe, who's played by Hugh Grant again, based on a, the real story uh, when this happened back in the seventies, I believe. And I wasn't in love with this series I, I mean it was nominated for best limited series tv show or or yeah limited series or tv movie and i think that by the end of it i can understand why i wasn't really that impressed with ben Wishaw's performance until the final episode it's only three episodes it is indeed a, a, a very many series and i think that i i got it by the third episode he has this a couple of moments in this final episode where he really really turns it up and in terms of his performance and, and Hugh Grant, I think is great the entire time. Hugh Grant's probably a, an underrated talent, even though I think people think highly of him. He's just a really great actor and he, he nails it the entire time. He has that charm and charisma that you exactly what you'd expect from this role as you go into it. 
he just nails it perfectly. Uh, the story is based on true events, so you know you kind of have to raise your hands and be like, "Hey, if you don't like something to do with the plot, the plot or narrative, then you know sometimes fiction's better than reality uh, in terms of storytelling." But that that is what it is. Ultimately, I, I mean, I it's not my favorite TV show from last year. I'm, I'm really excited to go revisit some of the other nominees uh, in these kind of TV show or limited series categories, which I plan on doing. You know, in the in the near term future, as, as well as you, because of course that that didn't get nominated for any awards, but it's, it's it is it is all the buzz right now. So I want to want to see that because it is it is getting decently good reviews once it got kind of into a wider platform. Yeah, but Scott, I don't know if you if you caught any of this at all or if you have any thoughts, but uh, I don't know if I have too much more to add. I'd say watch it because it's an interesting story. Uh, ben Wishaw, like, like I said, kind of tur- does turn it up in the final episode, and I, I can see where that uh, award at the Golden Globes comes from. And then Hugh Grant is, is Hugh Grant the entire time. Yeah, to be honest, I hadn't even heard of this until the Golden Globes. Um, but, you know, the talent involved um, does pique my interest some. So, uh, you know, if I have some time, maybe give it a watch. If it's only, what, three episodes, I think you said? So, Yep, it's, th- it's three hours. So it's yeah. like, you know, it's a long Not period. a huge commitment. And, and you can break. Yeah, and you can break it up. You can break. I watch it over the course of three nights. I just yeah. watched one episode a night. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was perfectly enjoyable. But, again... I wouldn't necessarily say it should be at the top of anyone's view list. Yeah. All right, Scott, time to wrap up today's episode with some news here. Kind of starting off, this is something that got us very excited earlier this week, and that is that Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise will be returning for two Mission Impossible sequels, which will release in back-to-back years. So that means they're being shot simultaneously. Again, those release dates will be summer 2021 and summer 2022. How excited are you for this? Extremely. I mean... Look, I think this is the logical thing for them to do, right? Like the Mission Impossible series, even though we're 23 23 years into it, like it's more popular than ever right now. It's riding higher than ever after the success of Fallout. And, you know, the main reason why it's riding so high is, number one, Chris McQuarrie, who's made two outstanding movies in Rogue Nation and Fallout, and also Tom Cruise, who just is the Energizer Bunny when it comes to uh, action heroes. So... Yeah, I mean, couldn't be more excited. As soon as the tickets go on sale, I'm buying it. Yeah, I mean, the big question here is what appendage will Tom Cruise break during the filming of this movie? Yeah, who knows? But hey, he'll probably still finish the scene out anyway because that's how he that's how he is. Yeah, I mean, if they have to reshoot the scene, that means they have to wait like three months for his, his leg to heal yeah, or whatever he broke. Heaven forbid. Uh, during the filming of Fallout. Yeah, exactly. All right, second piece of news here. Um, and news that really, I don't know if anyone wants it's, uh, or anyone was asking for, but the Sopranos is getting a prequel movie and has cast John Bernthal, Vera Farmiga, Corey Stoll, and Billy Magnuson in roles. Scott, I don't know if you ever watched, uh, the Sopranos, whether you watched all of it or whether you only watched some of it, I don't even know. Um, but is this something that piques your interest at all? Well, I mean, to answer your point, like I think there are a lot of people who are asking for this uh, because there are so many people who love The Sopranos. And I mean, it's among their favorite shows of all time. It's one of those shows where, you know, I feel like I would really enjoy it if I ever got the time to watch it. But it's one of those, you know, it's such a big commitment because it has five or six or seven seasons or so that I I don't think I could bring myself to start watching it unless I knew, um, you know, that I was going to be able to finish it in a reasonable amount of time which is just obviously not feasible with where I am in my life currently. So, you know, maybe someday um, I, I'll get around to watching it. I would like to, but until I do, I don't really see any interest for me, at least in this prequel. Although I do think a lot of people will, will check it out. 
Yeah, I'm intrigued because I don't know if I agree, Scott. I don't know if anybody who is like a huge fan of the Sopranos TV show has been like, you know what we need? We need a prequel for when Tony Soprano was a kid. I'm just, I just don't see that out there, but maybe I'm not in touch with the Sopranos fan base and that's probably true. But I mean, I just, well, I'm sure it will do well, especially if it gets, you know, a good score on Rotten Tomatoes. People will be interested because it is a known, it's a known property. People, people know what they would expect at least going into it. So it probably will do that on that way. I'm, I'm just like surprised that this is what, someone is investing in but you know maybe they'll make a lot of money who knows yeah sure i definitely agree all right in in news that i know that you're interested in scott apple and a24 are teaming up with sofia coppola and bill murray for on the rocks yeah very excited i mean lost in translation is in my top 50 movies favorite movies of all time um obviously that's sofia coppola and bill murray um and when you throw in a24 who's doing some of the most interesting original independent movies um, for the past few years. Um, this seems like a recipe for something that I'm going to love um, or something that I'm going to be very disappointed by, but hopefully it's the former. Yeah, I feel like this movie is going to be very, at least from what I understand, this movie seems like it's going to have a general, generally similar vibe to Lost in Translation as well because you know that movie is wandering around New York City. This movie seems like it's wandering around in LA. I'm not sure how it's actually going to end up playing hmm. out, but it makes sense why these are the, you know, Sofia Coppola as a director, Bill Murray as a leading actor, you know, maybe he ends up playing a supporting role. I don't know where he's going to shake out in terms of the cast, but it, it, you know, it it could be really good. Yeah. I'm, I'm very hopeful, even though I think Sofia Coppola really missed the mark with uh, the bling ring from a few years back. I still think she's a really interesting filmmaker and really enjoy her work most of the time. Did you see the, was it the remake of the beguiled, the beguiled? Yeah, it was good, not great. Yeah, I didn't see it, so I don't have anything to comment on that. But I know that that was that's her most recent film, I think, right? Yes, it is. Uh, all right, and other Bill Murray news: Ghostbuster, a, a Ghostbuster sequel uh, has been announced, directed by Jason Reitman from uh, Tully fame of last year. And you know, this is something that that I saw, and there to make sure to clear up any confusion for listeners, this is not a sequel to the 2016 female headlined Ghostbusters. <laughs> This is going to be like some sort of, I don't think they're going to call it this, but this is going to basically be like Ghostbusters 3. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't see the need for this. Like the first one is a classic. I really, I really like it. I, I won't deny that. The second one stinks. Like it, it is really, really bad. And considering we just had the, that reboot, as you say, three years ago, like I don't, I don't really get it. I don't get why they're bring, continuously bringing this back. It's not something where I feel like, oh, there's so much more that we need to add into the Ghostbusters universe. Um, so, you know, Jason Reitman, good director. Maybe it'll maybe it'll turn out all right, but um, it's not something that I'm going to be banging down the doors on day one to see. Hey, Scott, Ghostbusters 2 got a 53 on Rotten Tomatoes, so. It stinks. <laughs> Take it from me. <laughs> Will do. Uh, I mean, also, I mean, to your point, I think is I apologize if I'm wrong about this in advance, but is Dan Aykroyd still alive? Yeah, he Who is. is the, which one of the, the Ghostbusters? Harold Ramis. Oh, Harold Ramis. That's who it is. I apologize, Dan Aykroyd. You're not dead. Harold Ramis. That's right. He died. Was it like five years ago? That was. I don't remember. Anyway, less than that, I think. But yeah, it was fairly recent. Got it. Got it. Well, you know, Scott, we've gotten lots of announcements about live action, uh, you know, CG heavy Disney movies over the past few years. Ever since they made the Jungle Book from a few years ago, and we got another one this past week with the Hunchback of Notre Dame has been announced as a live action. Uh, remake. I think, Scott, that it hasn't been announced that this will actually get a theatrical release. It, it could be one of those things that launches or 
just goes directly to Disney Plus, which will be Disney's streaming platform. Because I, I don't know if this will uh, sink or swim at the box office. Because again, I think this is news around. Like, I'm not sure who was asking for this. Yeah. I think I'm probably in the same boat as most people, at least from my understanding of like, this is not one of the, those 90 Disney's nineties, Disney's Disney animated movies. That is really close to my heart in the way that, you know, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, Mulan, all of those that, you know, they already have the remakes for are. So maybe the smart thing would be to just send it to streaming because it's not one that has held up over time. I feel like as well as, you know, the other ones that they've already scheduled remakes for. Yeah, I agree. I'll be interested to see how this plays out. I don't even really remember Hunchback and Notre Dame that well. I mean, I know the I know the storyline. Yeah, you could probably uh, detail that out for people if someone asked me. That being said, it could be good. I mean, like I'm one of those things where they've done such a good job across the board with their remakes. Again, not all of them I'm necessarily in love with, but these live action remakes have generally been pretty good for the most part. And, and I'm yeah. I'll, I'll watch it if it comes out in theaters probably uh, obviously it depends on what it comes out around but you know if it's on streaming if it's on their disney plus platform uh, i'll almost definitely catch it yes i i i agree i'll see it as well and speaking of streaming platforms uh kind of our penultimate piece of news for this week netflix having their largest hike in subscription prices in its history it, it hiked the standard subscription two dollars the premium subscription two dollars and kind of the lowest level subscription one dollar scott i mean I get this from a business perspective. They are cranking out tons and tons of original content and laying down bank to maintain certain pieces of content on their platforms, uh, i.e. Uh, Friends, $100 million to hold on to Friends on the, on Netflix, I think, is what it was uh, either last year. Or, yeah, I think I think sometime in 2018 that, that got announced. But to me, I get it, and I think their content is probably worth this, but I do wonder if they are seeing subscription drop-off uh, because of this, my instinct says probably no, but in with the impending future of an infinite number of things to subscribe to, you know, whether that be Netflix and Hulu, right? So like kind of the original players in this space, but now you have over the top services from ESPN plus and NBC sports gold, which is relevant to you and me, Scott, because we obviously love to watch soccer, but then you have Disney plus coming out, you, you know, you have CBS's streaming service that they launched last year. There's just, they're starting to become uh, a large number of these subscription monthly payment services in the market. I don't think Netflix will be the first one to be dropped, but I think it's very significant that they're hiking their prices for the market landscape. I think it's significant, but I don't think that the increases will cause any great decline in subscribers. I mean, let's be honest here. A lot of people are mooching off of someone else's Netflix. Um, I mean, I know that personally, I don't pay for my Netflix. My my mother is still paying for my Netflix because we have like a family plan or, or we have, you know, an account that we share as a family. Yeah. Um, I mean, that makes sense, though. Uh, I, I think the, the the mooching off the Netflix part is like when you have one of your college buddies using Yeah, Netflix. no, no, I know. Yeah. But I, it's the same principle of where there's a lot of people who are using Netflix that aren't paying for it and, you know, may not really be affected um, by the fact that it's going up $2. And I think, you know, the people who are paying will hopefully see, you know, that, like you said, it's definitely worth it to pay whatever it's going to be, $11, $12 a month to get the kind of content that Netflix is putting out there. Yeah, I believe that it has now gone up to, for the four-screen HD uh, kind of, st- what, I, what I think most people would call the standard uh, subscription is, I think it's $12.99 now. Okay. Um, so, again, they're... I, I heard Jeff Snyder on Collider say that their content's worth twice that. 
per month, I think that you would definitely see some drop off if they doubled their subscription prices. Uh, that being said, I don't know if he's wrong. Their content probably is worth that if you're checking out all their original content because some of it's really, really good. I mean, Roma's yeah. on it, for goodness sake. I mean, yeah. And Private uh, Life as well, another movie in my top 20. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we'll see if that has an effect. We'll see if that maybe, I think that's more likely to have an effect on other platforms, not Netflix, right? Like if someone's ultimately having to cut, cut the budget, it might be, uh, it might be Hulu, it might be uh, CBS, it might be something else and not, and not Netflix. Yeah, I, I think Netflix would still be probably the last to go. I don't know, Disney Plus coming out, they're going to lose all their, they're going to lose all their, Mar- their, all their Marvel, true. all their Disney stuff. It'll be, I don't, Think, I mean, I don't think they're going to see steep drop off from their platform, but I think they know they're going to take some hit because some people are certainly subscribing primarily for the Disney content that's on Netflix. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. All right. Last piece of news, Scott, I'm saving this one for last. The Spider-Man Far From Home trailer, uh, first trailer came out this week. Uh, of course, we knew Tom Holland is going to survive Endgame. Uh, well, we assume so, at least, unless this movie takes a weird timeline perspective on us. But we also got the big reveal of something that we already knew, but Jake Gyllenhaal is playing Mysterio in Spider-Man Far From Home. You know, this trailer kind of hides the ball about whether he's going to be a hero or a villain, Scott. But what did you think of this trailer? I think it's a good trailer. I mean, obviously, I really like Spider-Man Homecoming. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal, one of my favorite actors right now. Um, so I, I've wanted him to be in a superhero movie for a long time. It's it's honestly kind of shocking that he hasn't been in one yet. Um so this is long overdue for me. And whether he's playing a hero or a villain or not, I, I look forward to seeing what he does. Although I agree with you, it is they do they do seem to hide the ball a little bit because we also know that Michael Keaton will be coming back as Adrian Toomes as the Vulture. So, you know, what kind of role Mysterio will play, even though he is historically a villain, um, will be something interesting to see. But yeah, in general, this looks uh, like it's going to be just as fun as the original. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of his arc in, in the comics is creating scenarios that he has to quote unquote save the day front in. And so you can kind of see that how that might be playing out here on screen mm-hmm. where, you know, ultimately he does become a villain or is a villain, I should say. Uh, but yeah, you're right. You know, we know that Michael Keaton's returning as Vulture. He will play some role. Uh, we're not sure how, uh, how big of a role it will be, but you know, he will be in the movie. I really like this trailer. I think that one of the more interesting theories that I've heard is that the trailer is going to be, is entirely from shots uh, where like the movie will take a two timeline perspective and the, sh- everything in the trailer will be from pre infinity war and everything that we haven't seen yet in the secondary timeline will be from post end game. So that's an interesting perspective. I don't know if I agree with that, but that it could be interesting. It would also explain why the world looks perfectly normal in, in the trailer. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's uh, obviously a lot of questions that in game will hopefully answer all of them. Um, but for now, it's there's still a lot up in the air. Absolutely. Well, Scott, that's all we have for news. And I think that will just about do it for episode 30 of Some Like It, Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Uh, only that if the P- Patriots and the Saints end up in the Super Bowl, I think it may be the first Super Bowl that I of my lifetime that I just don't even watch. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's been, okay, guys. I don't know if our if our movie listeners appreciate how significant L- that listen, is. Listen, that's yeah. Huge. You, you said any thoughts? That's what's on my mind at the moment. Um, I, I I may have to discover, you know, what the other networks are dumb enough, like the the trash content that they put on on Super Bowl Sunday, because they know no one's going to be watching it. Uh, I may have to discover, you know, what exactly that content is. 
Uh, or maybe I'll just watch a few more episodes of Friday Night Lights since I'm, I've been going through a rewatch. Uh, I don't know, but I, I don't think I can really put myself through watching two of my least favorite franchises in professional sports, uh, you know, duke it out for this crown. And an equ- equally unappealing halftime show also awaits. So uh, it, it's it, there, it could be a recipe for disaster. Hopefully, at least either the Chiefs or the, the Rams will pull through today, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe we'll get lucky and it'll be the Chiefs against the Rams. I don't know. That'd be great. Um, yeah, yeah. I, either way, you know, you know, I think the other chan- other networks would be smart to just kind of do a, a sort of, is it BBC? I forget. Is it BBC that does the, uh, they don't you they don't actually show any of the matches on soccer Saturday or whatever, but they just have people talking about the live matches yeah, yeah, that yeah. are going. It's, no, it's uh, Sky Sports that does soccer oh, Saturday. Sky does it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they, they maybe they'll do something like that at this. I mean, I never know. I never watch any of the other networks. Maybe they're all just having like some sort of well, whoever their um, analysts are for football on that network just talking about the <laughs> the Super Bowl happening, which would be devastating for you because then you you really would have and, to and, switch over to Netflix. And bad news: the Saints are already up thirteen to nothing, so it's not mm, looking good. Well, they're playing the Rams, right? Yeah. We'll see. Oh, well, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter to hear you complain about the game? Yeah, I'm at Scarvy Dent. I'll be ranting about that as well as if the media keeps Duke at number one on Monday, I will definitely be ranting about that as well. Stay tuned over on Twitter for that rant uh, and pending rant, I'm sure. And I can be found at SShelton2013. You can also find our podcast on Twitter, and we'd love it if you followed us over there at at MediaPlugPods. We'd love it even more, however, if you checked out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods there are a bunch of different reward tiers over there depending on how much you're willing to pledge to the podcast and we'd appreciate it so much even if you only contributed at the one dollar level again that is www.patreon.com slash media plug pods and you can check it out for yourself and pick the tier that's right for you if you choose not to support us over on patreon however that's totally fine you can still find us on apple podcasts and on podbean and new for 2019 again on podbean that's www.podbean.com slash media plug pods we're no longer on soundcloud and we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us, subscribed, shared, so that we continue to reach a broader audience. All right, Scott, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. Stay tuned uh, next week for part three of our 2018 and review series, where Jay Habib and myself review the past year in superhero films. And then we'll be back in two weeks' time for a brand new episode, but will not be some like it, Scott. That will be the finale of our 2018 in review series we'll be doing our own some like it's scott awards uh more to come on that stay tuned for that episode we are already in, in you know we've been planning that episode for a while and we really expect it to be something fun it's not just going to be a, a kind of straight award show where we do the same categories that you'd expect we're, we're trying to create some some new some new fun categories over there and then we'll be back so basically in four weeks time with a brand new episode where we're reviewing movies uh you know we're, we're still working out what movies we're re- be reviewing there but almost certainly the lego movie 2 will be one of them for now that's all from us for scott harvey i'm scott shelton bye everybody thanks for listening